Lucifer means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Sacred Order of Green Zombies Part 1 The Last Hero and the King of Corn. Friends and fellow mythical astronomers, today we're going to talk about one of the more perplexing elements of A Song of Ice and Fire, and that would be zombies. We're going to talk about a lot of things like Green Men and The Last Hero and Cold Hands and Jon Snow, but they will all be related to zombies. Resurrected people. The walking... well, you know. A Song of Ice and Fire has some serious zombie creep going on, and I'm pretty sure I know why. That's the point of this episode, to explain why exactly it is that George just can't seem to let sleeping corpses lie. It's not only interesting for its own sake, it's actually quite central to the puzzle of defeating the others and dealing with the long night. This will be a bit of an unusual episode in that you don't need to have read or listened to any mythical astronomy to understand what we'll be talking about today. I may occasionally mention ideas we've discussed elsewhere, but for the most part, Today's presentation will not be based on any previous theories. As is my general policy, we will be spoilers all books, but we will not be discussing any Winds of Winter sample chapters, nor anything from the TV show after season 5, which is the point where the show passed the books on most plot lines. As always, a deep debt of gratitude is owed to our Patreon supporters who fuel the fires of mythical astronomy. We've started having pre-episode chats on the topics for upcoming podcasts on the Patreon page, and it's been a lot of fun. So that's one of the things you can look forward to if you choose to join our Patreon campaign, which you can find at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. That's also where you can find the matching text to this podcast, as well as some fun pictures of mythological beings, which we'll be talking about today. As always, thanks to Animals as Leaders for providing the music to the show, their new album, The Madness of Many, just came out, and it's awesome, so of course, go check that one out. The track you just heard was Arithmophobia, and it was from their new album. A huge thank you to Martin Lewis, who will be doing the vocal performances today, with an assist from the Amethyst Koala. Martin is currently performing chapters from the first novel, A Game of Thrones, on his Facebook page, Echoes of Ice and Fire, so check that out, and the link to that is on my website. And you will recognize him from our joint podcast with History of Westeros on The Great Empire of the Dawn, which he did the vocals for as well. Martin came through on short notice for this podcast, so many thanks to him, and I'm sure you will all enjoy his performances. And last but surely not least, thanks to George R.R. Martin for writing the novels. So, zombies. There are some transformed beings out there who blur the lines between life and death, but what we are going to talk about today are zombies, the reanimated dead, human beings brought back from death. So far, we've seen three distinct varieties of them, the icy undead, fire undead, and whatever you call what Kyburn did with Gregor's corpse. The first are the whites raised by the others, which we will refer to as cold whites or icy undead. They rise with eyes like cold burning blue stars and are swathed in cold in every sense of the word. 
their flesh is frozen, and they make the air colder in their immediate vicinity, just as the others do. They appear to have only the vaguest remnants of memory and no free will whatsoever. They are zombies in the classic sense. They represent corpses reanimated with some kind of necromancy. I think it's safe to say that they are reanimated by what we would call ice magic, although that's a loose term by necessity, because we don't fully understand what, if any, delineations there are between what seem like different types of magic. Cold Hands is a bit of an unusual case, and I'll offer my explanation for his current state in a moment, but for the most part, he's also in the category of icy undead. He has important differences between himself and the Cold Whites, such as speech, apparent free will, and no blue star eye control, but in terms of physiology, he appears to be pretty similar to the Cold Whites. He's a dead and frozen corpse with no vital processes. We'll talk about Cold Hands in a minute. The second example would be, for lack of a better term, fire undead people, such as Lord Beric Dundarian and Lady Stoneheart, formerly Catelyn Stark. Their indisputably dead bodies are resurrected by what's called the Fiery Kiss, a Reloris tradition which up until recently was not known for reanimating corpses. Thoros, a red priest, resurrected Beric six different times, and when Beric gave Catelyn the same Fiery Kiss, Thoros says in A Feast for Crows that, quote, the flame of life passed from him to her. Beric has the trademark black blood of someone transformed by fire magic. Regular listeners and readers of mythical astronomy will know what I'm talking about here. And his own blood is capable of lighting his sword on fire. Again, I think it's safe to say that it is the magic we associate with fire and relore which has reanimated Beric and Catelyn. We can speculate as to why this ritual suddenly started resurrecting people, and if that might have had something to do with the weirwoods that grow in the Riverlands, but nevertheless, it is fire magic and a fire sorcerer who is making these particular undead people. That means that so far, we have zombies of ice and fire. Makes sense, right? As for Melisandre, she's another unusual case. I tend to think that the signs point to her undergoing a transformation process, as I've said before as opposed to a death and resurrection process, but we cannot know for sure, and some people do think that she has died and been resurrected. If so, it would have been accomplished with fire magic. We'll talk about her later as well. The third kind of zombie, to use that as a catch-all term, would be Frankengregor, or Ungregor, or Sir Robert Strong, as he is called. This is the one we know the least about. Kyburn seems like a fairly straightforward Dr. Frankenstein parallel, using some sort of fantasy pseudoscience to reanimate the dead based on his knowledge gained from vivisection and other twisted pursuits. But other than that, it's pretty vague. There is no sign of any kind of elemental force at work, no icy clouds wafting out of Kyburn's laboratory or a sulfur and brimstone stink, nothing like that. And Gregor himself only gives us a couple of clues as to his nature, such as the fact that he seems to be even stronger than before, and he might not be able to speak. He might not even have his own head, actually. Our main clue as to what Kyburn is up to comes from a comment he made to Cersei about blood magic being the most powerful type of sorcery, and the seemingly implied possibility that he's using the blood sacrifice of the people delivered to him in the dungeons to work some kind of blood magic. But that's about all we can say. Gregor is not the type of zombie we are interested in anyway, so we won't have too much more to say about him. One final outlier would be Patchface. He does seem to have drowned, but we can't say for sure. If he has undergone a death and resurrection process, 
which does seem like the most probable scenario, then it would have been accomplished through some freaky kind of water magic. This magical resurrection process based in water might even be the origin of the Ironborn's drowning and CPR ritual. Like Gregor, Patchface isn't really the kind of zombie we are looking for, so we'll only mention him in passing. We also have other sorts of magical beings who have extended their lifespan and become something other than human, such as the Undying of Karth, who have become mostly Shadow, or the Others, who are God only knows how old and appear to be vaguely human-like with icy bones and icy blood. This is also the category I believe Melisandre probably belongs in, magically transformed humans we'll call them, and the point is that these creatures are something more than resurrected human corpses. As such, they aren't quite what we are talking about. We are talking only about human beings who die and are then resurrected, and really what we care about are the fire undead people and cold hands. There's some dispute about what is raised Beric and Stoneheart, so let me pull the quote from A Storm of Swords, and this is Thoros speaking. I have no magic, child, only prayers. The first time, his lordship had a hole right through him and blood in his mouth. I knew there was no hope, so when his poor torn chest stopped moving, I gave him the good god's own kiss to send him on his way. I filled my mouth with fire and breathed the flames down into him, down his throat to lungs and heart and soul. The last kiss, it is called, and many a time I saw the old priest bestow it upon the Lord's servants as they died. I had given it a time or two myself, as all priests must, but never before had I felt a man shudder as the fire filled him, nor seen his eyes come open. It was not me who raised him, my lady. It was the Lord. Relor is not done with him yet. Life is warmth, and warmth is fire, and fire is God's, and God's alone. Now again, it is certainly a mystery as to why this last kiss suddenly was able to bring a dead man or woman back to life, but I think it should be beyond dispute that it is primarily what we would call fire magic that is at work here. The two main candidates for explaining this sudden potency would be the birth of the dragons, which seems to have made all magic stronger throughout the world, or something having to do with the magic of the weirwood net. There are some weirwoods and weirwood stumps in the Riverlands, such as the High Heart and in Barrack's Cave, which may well be under the High Heart. However, Thoros is not a green seer, and no green seers are present at any of Barrack's many resurrections, so all we can speculate on is some sort of regional effect, perhaps something like the wall being a hinge of the world, which makes magic stronger in its vicinity. One bit of speculation I will throw out here. What if the original purpose of the last kiss, which is given to people as soon as they die, was to resurrect people? Similar to the way the Ironborn CPR ritual may have had an origin in a real water magic resurrection, it could be the same for the last kiss of the Relorists. As I've mentioned before, the Relorists do seem quite fixated on becoming fire people, wearing robes meant to look like shifting flames and tattooing flames on their faces. It's really not hard to picture ancient Relorists making fire undead people like Beric. Now the thing I want to focus on here is Beric's quality of life and state of being. He's much better off than the Cold Whites, completely different in fact, because Beric has free will and conscious thought, whereas the Whites seem enslaved and retain very little of their original consciousness or memory. Beric even has a measure of vital function. His black blood still flows, and he can eat and drink, and presumably digest. 
unless the food just kind of goes down in his stomach and then burns up. I mean, I don't know, but at the same time, Beric has also lost quite a bit of himself, as he tells Thoros in A Storm of Swords. Can I dwell on what I scarce remember? I held a castle on the marches once, and there was a woman I was pledged to marry. But I could not find that castle today, nor tell you the color of the woman's hair. Who knighted me, old friend? What were my favorite foods? It all fades. Sometimes... I think I was born on the bloody grass in that grove of ash, with the taste of fire in my mouth and a hole in my chest. Are you my mother, Thoros? It seems that Beric is losing something of himself each time he comes back. Later in A Storm of Swords, we have the following quote from Beric to Thoros, right after Thoros admits that lighting his tourney blades on fire wasn't really a good way to treat a sword. Beric walks up unannounced and sort of kills the vibe with... Fire consumes. Lord Beric stood behind them, and there was something in his voice that silenced Thoros at once. It consumes, and when it is done, there is nothing left. Nothing. Beric, sweet friend. The priest touched the lightning lord on his forearm. What are you saying? Nothing I have not said before. Six times, Thoros? Six times is too many. He turned away abruptly. Beric doesn't even have it as bad as Lady Stoneheart, who was dead for three days before she was resurrected. Sounds kind of like Jesus. Her physical state is decomposed, and it seems her mental state may be as well. While Beric rides around and employs strategy and thinks about logistics and tactics and feeding people and so on and so forth, Stoneheart simply gazes on with malice and condemns people to die. Her other names are Mother Merciless and the Hangwoman. She can speak, albeit in a strangled fashion, so some part of herself does remain. The part that remembers who was guilty at the Red Wedding. <laughs> but she seems further decomposed than Beric in every way. Thoros actually refused to give her the last kiss, in fact, because she had been dead so long. But for some reason, Beric chose to give up his burden and pass the flame of life along to Lady Catelyn turned Lady Stoneheart. If I had to characterize the state of existence of Beric and Stoneheart, I would compare it to the way ghosts are portrayed in pop culture and myth. The most prevalent belief about ghosts is that they linger on the earthly plane clutching at something, some grievance or tragedy or remorse or other form of unresolved attachment to their life. It's almost always tied to whatever they were doing and however they were feeling before they died. And the key to helping set a ghost free to move on to the next realm generally has to do with bringing resolution to whatever the ghost is fixated on. The last thing that Beric was doing when he died was attempting to bring Gregor Clegane to justice and defending the Riverlands. And this becomes his sole motivation for existence after he is resurrected. He stays loyal to the mission, he was sent on by Ned in the name of King Robert, even after Robert and Ned are both dead. In similar fashion, Stoneheart is completely consumed with revenge for the Red Wedding, which is classic ghost material, a tragedy so heinous and unjust that there is no way a victim's shade could ever find rest. She is a specter who haunts the Riverlands, taking revenge on Freys and anyone else connected to the Red Wedding. I think all of this is indicative of Beric and Stoneheart as remnants of their former selves, not the complete soul returned to the body. They seem more like ghosts inhabiting their own reanimated corpses. 
We can't hope to be too technical here about what is a soul and what is a shade or ghost, but the point is that Barrack and Cat are both significantly deteriorated, and we don't want that to be true of Jon Snow. That's really what this comes down to. Jon is dead, and we don't want to see him turn up like Barrack or Stoneheart. This has led people to try to rationalize a way that Jon didn't actually die there in the snow, because they just can't accept the idea that Martin is going to turn the beloved Jon Snow into a Barrack. Well, I'm pretty sure that Jon is dead, bleeding out from a neck wound so fast he loses consciousness in less than a minute. But take heart. I don't think he'll be a Barrack, a remnant who can barely remember his former life or where his castle is. I don't think that resurrected John will be obsessed with avenging his death on his conspirators, and if he does return to the last thing he was doing when he died, planning an assault on Ramsay at Winterfell, I would expect that not to be the end of the line for John. Nope. I think there is very good reason to believe that John will turn out to be the optimal type of zombie, the kind who can help save us from the long night. The key is that John is a skin changer. John of the Dead. This section is brought to you by patron supporter and newest claimant to one of the Twelve Houses of Heaven, Werlaine Dervish, Woods Witch of the Wolf's Wood, earthly avatar of Celestial House Scorpio. With his dying words, John calls out to Ghost. And we know from the Vermeer prologue of A Dance with Dragons that when a skin changer's human body is killed, his spirit goes into his animal, there to linger for an unspecified amount of time before it eventually fades away into the beast spirit. This is known as a skin changer's second life. We hear the same thing from Bloodraven as he and Bran are chatting after Bran's first successful attempt to skin change a raven in A Dance with Dragons. Someone else was in the raven. He told Lord Brynden once he was in his own skin. Some girl, I felt her. A woman of those who sing the song of Earth, his teacher said. Long dead, yet a part of her remains. Just as a part of you would remain in summer, if your boy's flesh were to die upon the morrow, a shadow on the soul, she will not harm you. While the spirit of this singer is no threat to Bran, Something of the original skin changer does linger on inside the animal and can have an effect on any new skin changer to take possession of that animal. When the wildling skin changer Orel is killed by Jon Snow, his spirit lives on inside the eagle with a fierce hatred for Jon. Later, Varamir Sixkins takes possession of Orel's eagle and says to Jon, Once a horse is broken to the saddle, any man can mount him, he said in a soft voice. Once a beast's been joined to a man, any skin changer can slip inside and ride him. Orel was withering inside his feathers, so I took the eagle for my own. But the joining works both ways, Warg. Orel lives inside me now, whispering how much he hates you. We get the most information about this in Veramir's prologue of A Dance with Dragons, as I mentioned, which practically seems like it is designed to function as a kind of skin-changer 101 for the reader. They say you forget, Hagen had told him, a few weeks before his own death. When the man's flesh dies, his spirit lives on inside the beast, but every day his memory fades, and the beast becomes a little less a warg, a little more a wolf, 
until nothing of the man is left and only the beast remains. Varamir knew the truth of that. When he claimed the eagle that had been Oral's, he could feel the other skin changer raging at his presence. Oral had been slain by the turncloaked crow Jon Snow, and his hate for his killer had been so strong that Varamir found himself hating the beastling boy as well. In fact, this process of a skin changer merging with his beast can happen even without death being involved, as Jojen warns Bran in A Storm of Swords when Bran is gone a little too long in Summer's skin. Bran the boy and Summer the wolf, you are two then? Two, he sighed, and one. He hated Jojen when he got stupid like this. At Winterfell he wanted me to dream my wolf dreams. And now that I know, he's always calling me back. Remember that, Bran. Remember yourself, or the wolf will consume you. When you join, it is not enough to run and hunt in summer's skin. Jojen's point is punctuated by just how wolfish Bran acts when he's in summer. He thinks and acts like a wolf, more or less. Jojen asks him to mark trees as a means of exercising his human thought while he's in the wolf, but Bran fails. This shows us that the beast presence is very strong and is always trying to take over the human presence given enough time. It is no wonder that upon entering a second life, a skin changer would begin to become beast-like before too much time goes by. So, getting back to John's body lying in the bloody snow, John is dead and his spirit has now almost certainly gone into ghost. It will almost certainly be put back into John's body somehow, lest we have only wolf POVs from John for the rest of the series but we know there is a limited time in which to do so. This whole resurrection process is probably the meaning of a vision Melisandre sees of John in the flames in A Dance with Dragons. The flames crackled softly, and in their crackling she heard the whispered name Jon Snow. His long face floated before her, limbed in tongues of red and orange, appearing and disappearing again, a shadow half seen behind a fluttering curtain. Now he was a man, now a wolf, and now a man again. But the skulls were here as well. The skulls were all around him. Melisandre had seen his danger before, had tried to warn the boy of it. Enemies all around him, daggers in the dark. He would not listen. Unbelievers never listened until it was too late. A man, and then a wolf, and then a man again. That seems pretty straightforward as far as prophecy goes. Almost everyone takes this to mean that John's spirit will go into ghost for a time and then eventually be returned to his body, a man and then a wolf and then a man again. In this scenario, ghost is essentially acting as a soul jar for John's spirit, a storage vessel to keep it protected from dissolution until it can be put back into a new host body, or a resurrected host body. This is a common trope in fantasy stories, the ancient wizard who keeps coming back no matter how often he's killed because he has a soul jar hidden somewhere, which he returns to upon death, only to have his acolytes bring him a new host body so he can reincarnate. <laughs> Although I doubt Martin is imagining anything quite so fantastical as that, Ghost is in fact serving as a protective vessel for John's soul. That's likely the meaning behind Martin's choice to name the wolf Ghost. This is the main reason why John will not be a Barrack or a Stoneheart. His spirit will not dissolve into the ether upon death. When a normal person like Barrack is called back, even right after he dies, we've seen that a large part of the self is already gone. 
But from everything we know about skin changers and second life, the human soul goes into the animal. And I think we are talking about the whole thing here. He will start to merge with ghost and become more wolf-like, but assuming that someone can act in time, I believe that we have a hope of getting a resurrected John who can still remember where his castle is, and what fried bread dipped in bacon grease tastes like, and how to crack dick jokes with torment. And this is the beginning of why skin changers make the best zombies, because their animals can act like storage vessels for a short time. Sounds great, but there are three major obstacles. First, John's dead body will need to be reanimated or resurrected. That's actually the least difficult problem, as we have seen multiple means by which this could occur. John is in the north, so ice magic is a possibility, and Melisandre is nearby, so fire magic is in play as well. It may even be possible that there is a way to resurrect people with green seer magic, primarily based on this line from A Dance with Dragons, which comes after Bran wakes from his first round of green seer visions through Winterfell's heart tree and reports back on what he saw. Bran's throat was very dry. He swallowed. Winterfell! I was back in Winterfell! I saw my father! He's not dead! He's not! I saw him! He's back at Winterfell! He's still alive! No, said Leif. He is gone, boy. Do not seek to call him back from death. It's really an odd line, because Bran isn't even talking about attempting some sort of resurrection magic or anything like that and Leif just volunteers that a Greenseer should not try to raise people from the dead. The only reason to really warn Bran against trying to raise the dead would be if it is indeed possible for a Greenseer to raise the dead, and presumably this would have dire consequences. I tend to think that Greenseers can and have raised the dead, and we'll talk more about that later, but for now we can simply say that there are multiple avenues to raise John's body, be it a process based in ice or fire magic, or even a more theoretical Greenseer-based process involving Bran and or Bloodraven. John's body will be preserved from decomposition by the extreme cold, likely inside an ice cell, so the method of resurrection will determine the state of John's physical body when he's returned to life. A fire resurrection seems to have the best chance to restore some manner of vital processes like flowing blood and the ability to eat and drink, so I tend to favor that over ice, but who knows? Maybe John doesn't need to eat or drink to make for an interesting POV. Bran does see John in his coma vision, quote, sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him, which could certainly be foreshadowing to John's dead body becoming pale and hard like an ice white or like cold hands. Now, if John's body is raised by cold magic, that means his body will have been whited and that presents the additional problem of having to drive the white spirit out of the body so John can repossess it. That could make for some interesting drama, certainly. This may have been what happened to Cold Hands, a cold white who is not possessed by the other's blue star eyes magic, so we have to say that this is a possibility for John too. Old Nan had told her there were spiders down here, and rats as big as dogs. Rob smiled when she said that. There are worse things than spiders and rats. He whispered, this is where the dead walk. That was when they heard the sound, low and deep and shivery. Baby Bran had clutched at Arya's hand. When the spirit stepped out of the open tomb, pale, white and moaning for blood, Sansa ran shrieking for the stairs, and Bran wrapped himself around Rob's leg, sobbing. 
Arya stood her ground and gave the spirit a punch. It was only John, covered with flour. You stupid, she told him. You scared the baby. This is one of the well-known foreshadowings of John's death and resurrection. Arya's punch mimics Bowen Marsh's stabbing of John in the gut, which was also described as a punch. John is a pale white spirit with a shivery sound, so you could lean towards interpreting John as a cold resurrected being, but it's not what I would call conclusive. His ghost could be pale white with red eyes, like his wolf ghost, after all. Consider also that if he is to wield a burning red sword, being an ice white might pose a problem. Cold hands stays well away from the fire, indicating that he's as vulnerable to fire as other ice whites are. And although I am probably biased in the way of fire, I really do like the idea that ghosts' red eyes are a foreshadowing of what John's ghost will look like, pale white with eyes like two red suns. The second sun, if you will. Heck, maybe John's body will be raised by the other's ice magic and then repossessed with the aid of Melisandre's fire magic. I'm trying to keep our speculation grounded in the examples of magic that we have already been given in the books, but we also do not know what the limits of any magic are, so I'm also suggesting things that may be one step further than what we've seen. Common fire breaks the spell of the whites by destroying them, so perhaps fire magic could be used to simply break the hold of the others on the corpse, whereupon it could be repossessed by the original skin changer spirit. We don't have any idea what a theoretical Greenseer resurrection might look like, so that option is pretty much wide open. It may well be the best way, since both ice and fire resurrections seem to have certain limitations. A Greenseer resurrection could be the ticket to getting a resurrected John that is basically whole, one that could perhaps sire children on a certain thought-to-be-infertile-but-maybe-isn't Silver Dragon Queen. The second obstacle to achieving resurrected skin changer John is that we don't know how long we have to get John's spirit out of Ghost before his memories fade and he begins to merge with Ghost's spirit. If John is only in Ghost for a day or three, perhaps the human spirit can be separated from the wolf spirit and then returned to his body. This leads to the third problem, which is, how do you put a skin changer's soul back into his resurrected body after he's already begun his second life? But assuming that can be managed, this would be the more straightforward of the resurrection scenarios that we can imagine with the information that we have. Ghost would keep John's soul safe for just a couple of days, and then somehow it's returned to his body, more or less intact. But if he's in there longer, it's possible that his spirit could have merged with ghosts to the point where they can no longer be separated. In this scenario, the only way to get John back in his body would be to bring the wolf spirit along too to put the merged man-wolf spirit back into the human body. This would make for some kind of badass wolfman zombie, the kind of dude I could totally see whooping ass on the others or anyone else who gets in his way. That's pretty cool. The downside to this is that the wolf body would have to die, because if the merged wolfman spirit is going back to John's body, there's nothing left in the wolf. This would actually line up very well with John's many parallels with Mithras, because as we know, the white bull, who is a friend to Mithras, and even a part of Mithras in a sense, has to be sacrificed so that Mithras can be reborn. In our other podcasts, we have seen that Ghost has several scenes of foreshadowing involving bulls and sacrifice, so I feel like there is a good chance that this will happen. In this case, we could look at the idea of a merged wolfman spirit going back into John as a kind of silver lining, because Ghost won't really be dead. 
just his wolf body. Ghost will live on in John, with John's ghost. The third problem, which I already mentioned, is how to get John's spirit, or the merged John ghost spirit, out of the wolf and into the man again. A skin changer cannot do this by himself. Once he begins second life in his animal, he cannot then skin change other animals or into a new human body. Someone is going to have to help, and I think we got a likely foreshadowing of this in A Storm of Swords when the wildling skin changer Orel recalls being kicked out of his eagle. One moment, he had been soaring above the wall, his eagle's eyes marking the movement of the men below. Then the flames had turned his heart into a blackened cinder and sent his spirit screaming back into his own skin. And for a little while, he'd gone mad. Even the memory was enough to make him shudder. This isn't exactly like John's scenario will be, because Orel is not dead, merely inhabiting his eagle when the eagle is killed. But if we look at this as a potential literary foreshadowing, what we just saw was Melisandre using fire magic to drive a skin changer's spirit from his animal. It could be a similar scenario with Ghost being burned to send the Wolfman spirit back into the reanimated John body. Another potential foreshadowing of John's resurrection comes from Miri Mazdur's attempts to save Drogo's life in A Game of Thrones. Consider Miri's words as she sacrifices the stallion. Strength of the mount, go into the rider, Miri sang as horseblood swirled into the waters of Drogo's bath. Strength of the beast, go into the man. If Drogo had been a skin changer bonded to his horse, this ceremony might have actually worked. Drogo's body wasn't quite dead, but it was slipping into a coma, and his spirit could easily have been beginning to separate from his body. If Drogo was a skin changer, this whole ceremony would have made a bit of sense. His spirit would have gone into his horse as he died, and therefore killing the horse in such a way as to have the strength of the horse go into the rider would be akin to returning Drogo's spirit from his horse back to his body. Miri's leaf-shaped bronze knife, engraven with runes, almost reminds us of a First Men type of blood sacrifice ritual. And just to tell you, there's a really cool theory that the Dothraki bond with their horses, they let others share their wives, but not their horses, for example, and their horses are slaughtered with them when they die, is actually a leftover remnant of a time when the Dothraki actually skin-changed their horses. This is speculative, clearly, but not impossible, because in the world of Ice and Fire we learn of the Ifekevron, the Woods Walkers, who sound more or less exactly like Children of the Forest, and they live in a forest just north of the Dothraki Sea, and were revered by the Dothraki. There are tales of centaurs in the ancient past in this area, which could be accounts of horse skin changers. If that's the case, Miri might well have been using a skin changer resurrection ceremony quite intentionally, knowing full well that it would not work on Drogo, and that it would produce a vegetable. Now, regardless of whether any of that is true, I do think this botched resurrection involving the horse and Drogo might be serving as a loose parallel to the resurrection process for John. George has also given us a cool biblical zombie reference here, as Miri is of the people known as the Lazar, a seeming variant of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Thinking again of Kyburn and Ungregor, it may be that Kyburn was somehow using blood magic to send the strength or life force of the various torture victims into Gregor's corpse to animate it, 
just as Miri tried to send the strength of the horse into the rider. It's pretty interesting to note that both Kyburn and Miri are practicing what we would call blood magic, and both studied magic in a shy. But while Kyburn's blood magic has neither fire nor ice involved, Miri's blood magic performed on Drogo gives us a whiff of both. And here we find another parallel between this ceremony and Jon Snow's potential resurrection. This is Danny's inner monologue from A Game of Thrones. Inside the tent, the shapes were dancing, circling the brazier and the bloody bath, dark against the sand silk, and some did not look human. She glimpsed the shadow of a great wolf, and another like a man wreathed in flames. Jon Snow, who was almost certainly the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna, of Dragon and Direwolf, is very much a representation of the unity of ice and fire. Sometimes I like to call him Azor High Reborn in an Icy Sheath. Consider his dream in A Dance with the Dragons, where he's manning the wall alone, armored in black ice, with a sword that burns red in his fist. A very nice ice and fire dichotomy. So when we see the man wreathed in flame and the great wolf in Mary's tent, we can see a personification of Jon Snow. The flaming man can represent his Targaryen side because dragons are fire-made flesh, Danny proclaims herself fire-made flesh when she wakes the dragons, and Azor High Reborn is the, quote, warrior of fire. The Great Wolf, on the other hand, seems like an obvious call-out to the dire wolf of House Stark. Now, why would there be parallels to Jon's resurrection here at Drogo's botched resurrection? Well, for one, simply as a means to foreshadow the animal sacrifice component of Jon's resurrection in a clever way. Two, as a means of equating Jon with Drogo, Danny's husband, and that may be intended to foreshadow a union between Danny and Jon. And three, because Jon and Drogo both play into the larger Solar King archetype, which is part of the Azor High character. Regular listeners and readers of Mythical Astronomy will know what I'm talking about here, and if you're curious about this, simply check out the first episode of the Bloodstone Compendium, our very first podcast. The main point is that the death of the Solar King is the first part of the Azor Ahai Reborn process. In Danny's case, Drogo is the Solar King who dies at the same time that Daenerys rises as Azor Ahai Reborn, who is the new Solar King. She takes Drogo's place as Khaleesi and wears the lion pelt to signify that she, quote, has Drogo's strength inside of her. In Jon's case, he is both the dying Solar King and the reborn Azor Ahai, at least he will be. Danny has a symbolic rebirth in the pyre, and John will have a more literal resurrection, becoming Azor Ahai reborn the zombie, which is kind of what we're getting at here. So let's return to the matter at hand, which is how to get John's spirit, or a combined ghost John spirit, back into John's resurrected body. So far, it doesn't look good for ghost wolf bodies surviving, and we aren't done yet. We have other examples of skin changers being forced out of their animal by pain. It happens to Bran in A Clash of Kings when he tries to climb a tree in Summer's body as the Ironborn are invading Winterfell. Summer falls, and Bran is forced out by the pain. It also happens to Jon and Ghost in the Skirling Pass. Jon is forced out of Ghost when Ghost is viciously attacked by Orel's eagle, and that one's in A Clash of Kings. And in A Storm of Swords, Bran's wolf Summer takes a wound while saving Jon's life from the wildling party. And when Bran tries to reach out to Summer afterward, we read that... Bran had reached out for Summer time and time again, but the pain he found drove him back. The way a red-hot kettle makes you pull your hand back, 
even when you mean to grab it. Pain seems to be a pretty reliable way to force a skin changer out of an animal, and here the pain is even compared to a red-hot kettle, another potential allusion to the idea of burning ghost. Approaching this problem from the opposite end, how else might we accomplish the moving of John's soul back into his body? Well, there is one other example of how this might be done, and I'm happy to say that it actually gives Ghost a chance to live. Wouldn't that be nice? It comes from Vermeer's prologue in A Dance with Dragons. None of them had been as strong as Varimir Sixkins, though. Not even Hagen, tall and grim, with his hands as hard as stone. The hunter died weeping when Varimir took Greyskin from him, driving him out to claim the beast for his own. No second life for you, old man. Again, the important difference between this example and John's resurrection scenario is that Hagen was simply driven out of his wolf and back into his still-living body. And what we need to do with John is going to be harder, because we need to put the spirit back into a reanimated corpse and because John's spirit may have merged with ghosts to some extent. Nevertheless, this is the only other precedent for forcing a skin-changer spirit out of an animal, so it's worth considering. The obvious candidates for a skin-changer powerful enough to pull off something like this would of course be Blood Raven or Bran. I'd like to give a shout-out to one of my very favorite podcasts, Radio Westeros here, you all listen to Radio Westeros, right? whose episode, Jon Snow, Only the Cold, suggests Bran's involvement in Jon's resurrection, perhaps in the Weirwood Grove of Nine, where the Night's Watch brothers say their vows in front of heart trees. They also suggested the idea of a merged Jon ghost, which produces a more wolfish Jon, which I obviously think is a terrific idea, with a good chance of shaking out to be true. Alright, so we've presented multiple ways by which Jon might be resurrected and two different ways that he might be sent back out of Ghost and into his body. Let's say that some combination of these possibilities works out, and now we've raised John from the dead. His skin-changer status has hopefully preserved his spirit more than other zombies we've met. Maybe he's a wolfman. Maybe it's mostly the same old John. But either way, he's a skin-changer zombie, and he's the best zombie we've ever met. He's got to be handsome enough to woo Daenerys, after all. So what's the point of killing John and raising him from the dead, other than having a dramatic narrative cliffhanger where we all think John is dead for five years while George writes the next book? Should I say six years? I've made this point elsewhere in passing, but it really deserves its own time in the sun, and that's why I've made this standalone episode about zombies. This is the ultimate purpose, not only of John's resurrection, but of the general increase in zombie activity in the story, which, admittedly, strikes some people as out of place or odd. So what's all this zombie stuff about? This is about the last hero. The old last hero and the new last hero. This is about creating the ideal person to journey into the cold, dead lands and confront the others. We don't know if that means fighting the others, or something more complex, some kind of negotiation, trade, or sacrifice, but the main thing we do know is that the last hero journeyed into these cold, dead lands and confronted the others, and this is thought to have somehow brought about an end to the long night. We'll talk about all of that, but just think for a moment about the skill set offered by a fully conscious, resurrected person. There's been too much going around. Mira insisted. And too many secrets. I don't like it. I don't like him. And I don't trust him. Those hands of his are bad enough. 
He hides his face and will not speak a name. Who is he? What is he? Anyone can put on a black cloak, anyone or anything. He does not eat. He never drinks. He does not seem to feel the cold. It's true. Bran had been afraid to speak of it, but he had noticed. Whenever they took shelter for the night, while he and Hodor and the reeds huddled together for warmth, the ranger kept apart. Sometimes cold hands closed his eyes, but Bran did not think he slept. He doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to seek warmth or shelter. Like I said, pretty much the ideal skill set to survive north of the wall, right? Those are the major problems. Food, shelter, warmth, all solved by zombiehood. This is exactly what is going on with Cold Hands, who has been ranging the frozen dead lands beyond the wall for God only knows how long. I'm not saying Cold Hands is the original last hero, although that is possible, but what I am proposing is this. Both Cold Hands and the last hero have something in common with Jon Snow, and that is being a resurrected skin changer or green seer. I am proposing that only a resurrected skin changer can ultimately face down the others and their cold winds, and that John is going to become a resurrected skin changer precisely because he will be the man to confront the others, the new last hero for a new long night which is surely coming. We have a lot less to go on with the last hero, so we'll start with him, and then we'll talk about Cold Hands, one of the best mysteries in A Song of Ice and Fire. I've been waiting since, like, forever to talk about Cold Hands. I mean, he might be my favorite character, as odd as that sounds. Talk of John will be woven throughout, and we might see some green men pop up here and there. The last hero was a zombie. This section is brought to you by patron supporter and newest claimant to one of the Twelve Houses of Heaven, Lady Jane of House Celtigar, Emerald of the Evening and Captain of the Dreadship Eclipse Wind, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Cancer. This is my theory in a nutshell. The last hero was a skin changer or green seer who became a zombie in order to defeat the others. Again. We don't know how exactly this was done. The Annals of the Night's Watch speak of the last hero slaying others with a blade of dragonsteel, so fighting is probably involved. But in a story like A Song of Ice and Fire, it's also unlikely that the fate of the world would come down to just simple sword fighting. That's not really important for the matter at hand, though. However he confronted the others, being a skin-changer zombie is what made it possible, in my opinion. John will be called upon to do the same, and he's about to become a skin-changer zombie. That's actually one of the best supporting pieces of evidence for this theory. John is, in fact, going to become a resurrected skin changer, and we are left to ask why. I believe this theory provides compelling reason for it, and I cannot think of any other reason for him to be undead other than it uniquely prepares him to journey into the cold dead lands, as Cold Hands does now, and as the last hero once did. Alright, so let's consider the last hero. We are told of him in a Game of Thrones, early on, by none other than Old Nan. So as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children, in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. 
he set out into the deadlands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched, until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it, and the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders big as hounds. The idea that the last hero might have been a Stark, together with the dog in this story, has been taken by many as clues that the last hero was a skin changer. We generally associate the first men with skin changing, and the Starks with being wargs, so it just kind of feels right. The tradition of creating stone effigies of the Kings of Winter with a wolf at their side, which goes back some 8,000 years in the past or more, speaks of a family that has always been a family of wargs. When you consider that Bran and Jon, the ones who most closely parallel the last hero, are both skin changers, it starts to seem more likely. In any case, we are all familiar with the basics. Twelve companions who died, a dog and a horse who also died, a sword broken from the cold, the others and their ice spiders. And then there's a gap in the story as Martin interrupts Old Nan with other events in the chapter. But later in the chapter, Bran and the rest receive news from Yorin that Benjen Stark has not been seen in a while, and then we get a clue about the resolution of the last hero's story. All Bran could think of was Old Nan's story of the others and the last hero, hounded through the white woods by dead men and spiders as big as hounds. He was afraid for a moment, until he remembered how that story ended. The children will help him, he blurted. The children of the forest. Theon Greyjoy sniggered, and Maester Lewin said, Bran, the children of the forest have been dead and gone for thousands of years. All that is left of them are the faces in the trees. Down here, might be that's true, maester, Yorin said. But up past the wall, who's to say? Up there, a man can't always tell what's alive and what's dead. Truer words were never spoken. North of the wall, it's hard to tell what is alive and what is dead. There's lots of foreshadowing in this passage, which is why I quoted a bit more of it than necessary. The key point is the last hero's story. At some point after the death of his twelve companions, his horse and his dog, he receives some kind of aid from the children of the forest that allows him to triumph. That's pretty wide open. We don't know what kind of help he received or how that enabled him to win. We can immediately speculate that the children of the forest might have sheltered him from the others because we have seen the children do that for Bran in Bloodraven's Hollow Hill, which is warded by spells that the whites cannot break. Those same spells keep cold hands out as well, confirming that cold hands is basically similar in nature to the cold whites, except for not being possessed. But sheltering the last hero from the others doesn't defeat the others, or win the war for the dawn, so there must be a few more pieces to the puzzle. The only other clue about the last hero comes in A Feast for Crows, when Sam reports back to John his findings in the Annals of the Night's Watch. It's short, so we'll just quote it to be exact. I found one account of the Long Night that spoke of the last hero slaying others with a blade of dragon steel. Supposedly, they could not stand against it. Somehow, the last hero goes from cold and alone and chased by the others with a broken sword 
to possessing this mysterious sword of Dragonsteel, which the others could not stand against. That's all we have to go on regarding the last hero, and it leaves a lot of questions. The children in ancient day provided dragonglass weapons to the Night's Watch, so if Dragonsteel is simply a big, sword-sized hunk of dragonglass, then maybe the children gave him the sword, and that's that. But if it's something more, some kind of metal, then it's hard to see how the children could have provided it. My buddy Aziz from History of Westeros suggested on a recent collaborative episode on the Great Empire of the Dawn that the rumors of the children trading with seafaring traders in the Dawn Age at Battle Isle could account for the children somehow coming into possession of an advanced steel weapon that they then could later have provided to the last hero. That's one possibility, and otherwise it's pretty hard to see how the children could have provided the last hero with a sword. The other possibility is that they didn't. Perhaps they provided him some other kind of help crucial to defeating the others. Perhaps they raised the last hero from the dead. If the last hero was an undead skin changer, as I suggest, then someone has to raise him from the dead. It could have been anyone, someone not pictured in the story, but the children are the obvious candidate. Do not seek to call him back from death. So you're saying there's a chance. There's another clue about the children being able to interact with the dead in a clash of kings, when Lord Commander Mormont leads the ranging into the haunted forest, and they come upon White Tree and its monstrous weirwood. Mormont is contemplating a human skull found in the maw of the weirwood, like some sort of barbarian hamlet. Would that bones could talk, the old bear grumbled. This fellow could tell us much. How he died, who burned him, and why. Where the wildlings have gone. He sighed. The children of the forest could speak to the dead, but I can't. For what it's worth, Martin did create a Yorick Ironwood who apparently joined the Night's Watch some time in the past, so the odds are good that this scene is indeed a humorous nod to Hamlet. In any case, this idea that the children could speak to the dead could be a garbled account of Greenseer's speaking with the dead in the sense that they can hear the words spoken in the past by people who are now dead. But from what we've seen so far, the most Greenseers seem to be able to do is to rustle their leaves a bit for the person in the past, or maybe breathe a word on the wind in the present time, as Bran does by making the Winterfell heart tree whisper Theon's name. That's not really speaking with the dead, though, so perhaps this is a clue about the children being able to actually interact with deceased souls, and maybe, just maybe, call them back. A slight variation on this idea would be the possibility that the last hero was killed by the others and whited, and that the children helped him by driving out the other's magical possession, freeing his soul and making him a conscious cold white. Again, this might be how Cold Hands was created, and it could happen to John, as I mentioned. If the last hero was a skin changer, then the same logic applies to him that applies to John. His soul might have been stored in an animal until his body could be freed of other possession, and the children are a likely candidate to have helped accomplish this. Once again, on the most basic level, John will be an undead skin changer, so his parallels to the last hero, which we'll discuss in more detail as we go, demand that we consider the possibility that the last hero might also have been an undead skin changer, however he might have been resurrected. If we look at the last hero's story as we would an ancient fable, we can see that this very act of journeying into the, quote, dead lands is thematically symbolic of someone journeying into the realm of death, into the grave, 
and seeking for a way to defeat it. Thematically, The Last Hero's story is all about defeating death, and thus resurrection, and it may well literally be about those things too. Now John parallels The Last Hero, true, but he also parallels Azor Ahai, a character who, as it happens, is fundamentally about being reborn. You ain't called Azor Ahai reborn for nothing, right? John is about to become Azor Ahai reborn as a zombie, so again, we must consider it possible that the original Azor Ahai was a zombie. Now, if you know anything about mythical astronomy of ice and fire, you know that I believe the concept of Azor Ahai reborn does not apply to merely only one person, that it is more like an archetypal role which multiple characters play into. Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen are the two most obvious and important manifestations of the idea of Azor Ahai reborn, but other characters seem to parallel Azor Ahai as well, such as Beric Dondarrion and Stannis Baratheon, two people who wield flaming red swords in the series. That does not mean that every single person who echoes some part of the Azor Ahai symbolism will play a part in ending the Long Night as we expect Jon and Danny to. Beric, for example, is already dead. Dead is in permanently dead, so we know that his echoes of Azor Ahai are probably meant to be symbolic in nature. Stannis is basically an imposter Azor Ahai with a fake Lightbringer, and he too I tend to view as a symbolic echo, meant to inform us about the nature of Azor Ahai. So with that brief explanation of archetypes and how they are used in mind, consider Beric and Stannis, two of our flaming sword wielders, because both people give us clues about an undead skin changer or green seer version of Azor Ahai. Stannis is an obvious Azor Ahai parallel by virtue of being called Azor Ahai Reborn and wielding a flaming sword called Lightbringer, but it goes further. Stannis heads north to the Wall, and he is primarily concerned with facing the threat of the others, just like the last hero would have been. And wouldn't you know it, Stannis is often described as half a corpse. He's apparently been drained by making those shadow babies with Melisandre, as Davos observes in A Clash of Kings. Now that Stannis Baratheon had come into his power, the lordlings buzzed around him like flies round a corpse. He looks half a corpse too, years older than when I left Dragonstone. It's half a corpse Azor High, in other words. He also keeps a fire magic user at his side, and even practices a bit of fire magic as well, seeing a vision or two in the flames in his own right. As for clues about skin changing or green seeing, we must look to his house. Stannis is a Baratheon, whose sigil is the stag. Stannis's is a burning stag enclosed in a fiery heart. And the Baratheons typically wear helms with antlers on them. The ancient storm kings of Durandon also wore the stag crown, which is more of the same symbolism. Naturally, this reminds us very much of the green men on the Isle of Faces, who are said to either have antlers on their head or to wear antlered headgear, and who are likely to be green seers of some fashion or another. Thus, Stannis is a half-corpse stagman who carries Lightbringer. Apologies for just dropping something tasty in there like the green men offhandedly, but we're going to talk about green men quite a bit in just a minute. Then we have Beric Dondarrion, owner of perhaps the largest inventory of meaningful symbolism in the entire series. He's got the flaming sword, he's a resurrected corpse, and he's strongly tied to fire magic, so, like Stannis, he implies Azor High, the fiery half-corpse. 
Beric has weaker parallels to the last hero in that he heroically leads a noble brotherhood against long odds, and he wears a black cloak. Although admittedly Beric's black cloak is speckled with stars, and that is clearly against the Night's Watch dress code. Beric isn't a stag man, but he is sworn to one, King Robert, in whose name he fights on. Beric also has several clear parallels with Bloodraven, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with, which work to imply Beric as a stand-in for a green seer. When we first see resurrected Beric, he's in a cave threaded through with weirwood roots, just like Bloodraven's cave, and he's actually seated in a tangle of weirwood roots, very like Bloodraven and the other green seers in the cave who sit in weirwood thrones. Beric has one eye put out, just like Bloodraven. Beric is called a scarecrow knight, while Bloodraven is the three-eyed crow and was once a crow of the Night's Watch. Beric is also called the Lord of Corpses, while Bloodraven is called the Corpse Lord in a brand chapter of A Dance with Dragons. Beric is called the Wisp of the Wood, and Wisp means ghost, while Bloodraven is essentially a ghost turning into a tree. All of which is to say, Beric is showing us the symbolism of a resurrected green seer, or skin changer, who wields Lightbringer, just like Stannis, and just like John, and perhaps just like the last hero. John and Stannis also have the blood of the dragon in their veins, while Beric parallels someone who does, Bloodraven. The notion of the last hero being a resurrected skin changer, who also has the blood of the dragon, meshes well with the idea of the last hero being connected to Azor High, who almost certainly had the blood of the dragon in his veins. Once again, John seems to be the culmination of all of this, uniting green seer blood and dragon blood, wielding a burning red sword only in his dreams so far, but you know it's coming in real life too, becoming a resurrected person, leading the fight against the others. And if you're curious about hearing some of the other evidence for the idea of Azor High being a green seer, check out my episode called The Grey King and the Sea Dragon, if you haven't already. This is my current hypothesis about Azor High, that he was a green seer, and that's irrespective of whether or not he's the last hero, though obviously I think there is some sort of close connection. It's also worth noting that fire magic is the key to the transformation process of both Stannis and Beric. Beric is resurrected by fire magic, and Stannis has been drained and turned corpse-like through the use of Melisandre's fire magic. This may be another clue about Jon's resurrection coming via fire magic, and or a clue about the last hero being raised with such, although I want to stay open-minded about that. I really am holding out hope for a green seer resurrection, if only to see what happens. Alright, I think our theory makes sense so far. A skin changer zombie is ideally suited to face the cold dead lands, and that is what the last hero did, face the cold dead lands. John will be a skin changer zombie, and he's probably fated to journey into those same cold dead lands. Several major characters who parallel Azor High Reborn to some extent suggest the idea of a resurrected skin changer or green seer. But John hasn't been resurrected yet, and we may have already seen a resurrected skin changer. So let's talk about cold hands. Hands of cold are always old. This section is brought to you by patron supporter and newest claimant to one of the Twelve Houses of Heaven, Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackroom, sworn alesmith to House Stark, Grand Maester of the Zipomancer's Guild, Keeper of the Buzz, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Sagittarius. Brother. 
The shout cut through the night, through the shrieks of a thousand ravens. Beneath the trees, a man, muffled head to heels in mottled blacks and greys, sat astride an elk. Here, the rider called. A hood shadowed his face. He's wearing blacks. Sam urged Gilly toward him. The elk was huge, a great elk, ten feet tall at the shoulder, with a rack of antlers near as wide. The creature sank to his knees and let them mount. Here, the rider said, reaching down with a gloved hand to pull Gilly up beside him. Then it was Sam's turn. My thanks, he puffed. Only when he grasped the offered hand did he realise that the rider wore no glove. His hand was black and cold, with fingers hard as stone. And with that memorable scene from A Storm of Swords, Cold Hands rides into our imagination, giving rise to a thousand fan theories and one. First off, I have to say that I do not think Cold Hands is being skin-changed by Bloodraven, a theory which is out there. I think this is apparent from the way that Cold Hands speaks and acts, as we will see in our analysis here. Nope, I believe Cold Hands is his own man. His own dead man, rather. I am proposing that he is an undead skin changer or green seer. Not only that, but he seems to still be in possession of his green seer magic, which is a good sign for resurrected John being able to use magic. It probably couldn't be any other way if you think about it. It doesn't really make much sense to take away John's magic before the conclusion of the books. If anything, I'm expecting resurrected John to potentially have more access to magic, not less. So let's start there, with why I think Cold Hands is a skin changer or green seer, and why I think he is still in possession of his magic. The first clue is that the great elk, which Cold Hands rides, is not terrified of him, as animals usually are of the corpse stink of the whites which Cold Hands definitely has. We are introduced to the idea that animals are not keen for the smell of the whites in A Game of Thrones, when John and the Night's Watch discover the corpses of Jafer Flowers and Othor in the haunted forest. None of the dogs will go anywhere near the corpses, no matter if they are kicked and dragged by mean old Chet. Even when the corpses are wrapped up in cloaks, they cause the horses to go mad when the brothers try to put the corpses on their backs. The horses kick and scream and bite to the point where the Black Brothers had to rig up sleds to drag the bodies back to Castle Black themselves. The direwolves are not quite as terrified of the cold whites. Recall that it was Ghost who found the corpses and tore off a hand to bring back to show John. But they still smell the peculiar corpse stink of the whites, and they do not like it. This is from the first brand chapter of A Dance with Dragons, when the party is starting north with cold hands. The elk stopped suddenly, as the ranger vaulted lightly from his back to land in knee-deep snow. Summer growled at him, his fur bristling. The direwolf did not like the way cold hands smelled. Dead meat, dry blood, and a faint whiff of rot, and cold, cold all over. Notice that there's only a faint whiff of rot. The cold and or the cold magic seems to preserve the whited bodies. It was the same when John and company found Othor and Jafer flowers. They did not smell like decomposing bodies. So the smell of these icy undead is different than a dead body, and presumably not as bad, because nothing is as bad as decomposing flesh, after all. Despite this, normal animals are terrified of them, 
and even direwolves are not too keen on them. There is something about their smell which is just plain old wrong, and thematically, this makes sense because the whites are essentially an abomination of natural life. The great elk, however, shows no signs of being troubled by cold hands' wrong smell, permitting cold hands to ride on its back as if it were a horse or a mule. The only explanation is magic, of one sort or another. Even without the corpse stink problem, riding a great elk is basically a miracle. How many of you know what a great elk actually is? I didn't until I looked it up. It's a real thing, and it's absolutely terrifying. Do yourself a favor right now if you can, and look up Irish elk skeleton, and take a look at these beasts. Ten feet tall at the shoulder is not an exaggeration, and a rack of antlers the same distance across is no lie either. And saying rack of antlers really doesn't do it justice. These things look like two five-foot dragon wings made of bone with swords attached to them. Take a look and tell me if you have a better description because that's basically what they look like. The muscle needed to lift a head with those giant multi-pronged man skewers must have been stupendous. This was an immensely powerful, truly terrifying creature if angered. Normal stags are symbolic of wild male virility, the ultimate untamable animal. And this is basically like a stag reimagined in some sort of demonic alternate universe. Dragon wings with swords sticking out, made of bone, I'm telling you. I've been meaning to rant about the Irish elk for a while now, but the point is that this is a wild beast, not a mule. And the only way anyone could ride one is through Greenseer magic. Additionally, and of course this is the point, Cold Hands isn't just any old person, he's an icy undead person with his unnatural smell that animals really do not like. So Cold Hands is not only taming a fearsome wild beast, but he's also somehow overcoming the fear of whited corpses which all animals seem to share. It's a mystery deserving of an answer. Perhaps more inexplicably, the elk seems to obey Cold Hands' commands even after he separates from the party to go after the rogue Night's Watch mutineers. The elk carries the children to a pre-designated spot or very close to it, which is the little abandoned wildling village by the lake. On the way, Bran thinks how he cannot tell from the snow-covered landscape where the lake ends or begins, but that the elk seemed to know the way, and indeed it did. This is highly intelligent, coordinated, cooperative behavior between the elk and cold hands. And again, it really doesn't make any sense without green seer magic as an explanation. And on the flip side, green seer magic very neatly explains what we see, except that cold hands is dead. Here we come upon a problem with the idea that Blood Raven is skin changing cold hands. If he is inhabiting cold hands' body, who is working magic on the elk? It seems unlikely that Blood Raven is doing all of that at once. We've never been shown a skin changer who can split his consciousness and inhabit two beings simultaneously, much less a skin changer who can simultaneously inhabit something that is dead and something that is living. It makes more sense that the relationship between the elk and cold hands is more typical of a skin changer and his animal, as it appears to be. Now, skin changers do not literally need to inhabit an animal to control it. Vermeer Sixskins is able to ride his snow bear without actually skin changing it, for example. The mere fact that he has established a skin changer bond with the bear is apparently enough to control it. We are told that the bear hated Vermeer's bonding with it, so we know that when Vermeer rides it, he is in fact using his skin changer magic to control a wild beast without actually inhabiting its consciousness from moment to moment. 
Otherwise, he'd be in a dream state on top of the bear, and he would fall off. It just wouldn't work, you know? We could also look to the Starks and their wolves as examples. The wolves are fearsome, deadly beasts, but never hurt the Stark children, and the Stark children don't need to be skin-changing their wolves from moment to moment to make it so. What we can say from all of this is that if Cold Hands has access to skin change or magic, it pretty neatly explains the problem of the elk. The other major possibility are those Children of the Forest Green Seers that Bran sees in Bloodraven's cave. They seem pretty far gone, but who knows? Maybe they are forcing the elk to carry a corpse on its back against its will. The main argument I have against this is that there are signs of a personal relationship between Cold Hands and the Great Elk, which smacks of a typical human-animal bond or skin-changer-animal bond. I am mentioning it in the interest of good scholarship, but I think this option is unlikely, as you will see. The next sign of Cold Hands using skin-changer magic that we need to discuss is his communication with ravens. Although we associate the idea of using ravens to communicate with the maesters, this practice actually originated with skin changers, as we learn from Lord Brynden Rivers, a.k.a. the Three-Eyed Crow, in A Dance with Dragons. Do all the birds have singers in them? All, Lord Brynden said. It was the singers who taught the first men to send messages by raven. But in those days, the birds would speak the words. The trees remember, but men forget. And so now, they write the messages on parchment and tie them round the feet of birds who have never shared their skin. The last line makes it clear that the original practice was to share the skins of the birds being used to communicate, not just a matter of training the ravens to speak or even understanding the speech of ravens, although the children are said to be able to understand animal speech. But here, Bloodraven is specifically indicating that human skin changers in ancient day used ravens to communicate with each other by means of sharing their skin. Right after Bloodraven talks about this, Bran thinks to himself that Old Nan has told him similar stories. And in the World of Ice and Fire, the maesters also refer to the idea that the children of the forest, quote, could speak with ravens and make them repeat their words and that the children taught this higher mystery, as they call it, to the first men, so that they might use ravens to communicate. In other words, the idea is out there, but Bloodraven has the insider info. It was originally skin changers, first children of the forest, and then first men, who used their magic to communicate via raven. And so, in the first brand chapter of A Dance with Dragons, we see cold hands, well, let's just read it. From a nearby oak, a raven quarked, and Bran heard the sound of wings as another of the big black birds flapped down to land beside it. By day, only half a dozen ravens stayed with them, flitting from tree to tree or riding on the antlers of the elk. The rest of the murder flew ahead or lingered behind, but when the sun sank low, they would return, descending from the sky on night-black wings until every branch on every tree was thick with them for yards around. Some would fly to the ranger and mutter at him, and it seemed to Bran that he understood their quarks and squawks. They are his eyes and ears. They scout for him and whisper to him of dangers ahead and behind. If Blood Raven was skin-changing cold hands, there would be no need for cold hands to use the ravens for scouting because Bloodraven can already see anything he wants through the Weirwood Net. 
But if we look at Cold Hands as a green seer or a skin changer, then this scene makes perfect sense. He's communicating with the ravens just as an ancient first man skin changer would. If it weren't for the fact that Cold Hands is dead, he would be easy to recognize as a green seer or skin changer. In fact, we might even recognize him as a green man, as in the sacred order of green men that keep watch on the Isle of Faces. When Samwell emerges from the well at the night fort, to the great surprise of Bran and company in a storm of swords, he begins to tell them about Cold Hands. He said, Jojen frowned, this Cold Hands. That wasn't his true name, said Gilly, rocking. We only called him that, Sam and me. His hands were as cold as ice, but he saved us from the dead men, him and his ravens, and he brought us here on his elk. His elk, said Bran, wonderstruck. His elk, said Mira, startled. His ravens, said Jojen. Hodor, said Hodor. Was he green, Bran wanted to know. Did he have antlers? The fat man was confused. The elk? Cold hands, said Bran impatiently. The green men ride on elks, Old Nan used to say. Sometimes they have antlers too. We do not really know what the green men are, humans or elves or something in between, but it is worth noting that Cold Hands seems to be imitating one by riding the elk and keeping watch over the deep wood, except that he's a dead man in blacks instead of a living one in green. Whatever the green men are, they are certainly associated with green seeing and the children of the forest, as we know they are said to keep their silent watch on the Isle of Faces, one of the only places in the south where the weirwoods were not cut down. The story goes that in the Dawn Age, the children of the forest and the first men gathered on the Isle of Faces to sign the pact. Maester Lewin picks up the story in A Game of Thrones. So the gods might bear witness to the signing. Every tree on the island was given a face, and afterward the sacred order of the green men was formed to keep watch over the Isle of Faces. Personally, I think it would make sense that the people stuck on the Isle of Faces with nothing but trees with faces would be able to, you know, use the trees with faces. Bran thinks to himself in A Storm of Swords that, quote, All the tales agreed that the green men had strange magic powers. And the most likely magic to associate with green men on an island full of weirwood trees would be green seer or skin changer magic. I definitely think that we can take the association drawn between Cold Hands and the Green Men as another clue about Cold Hands having something to do with Green Seers and their magic, if nothing else. We are going to find more signs of Green Men as we go, however, so there may be something more specific to Green Men going on here. Turning back to the evidence that Cold Hands currently uses Skin Changer magic, we find that he seems to have a great deal of remote knowledge. This is most likely through the scouting of the ravens, as we've seen, but it's not impossible that he has some more direct connection to the Weirwood Net and or Bloodraven. Just because I do not think Bloodraven is skin-changing cold hands doesn't mean that they can't have a method of communication. Perhaps Bloodraven speaks to cold hands through the ravens, or perhaps he can send cold hands occasional visions as he does to Bran. The picture being painted here is that the ranger cold hands basically has the haunted forest on lockdown. Not only does Cold Hands detect the Night's Watch mutineers from Craster's Keep and go back to slaughter them, with great savagery it would seem, 
He also knows that Bran and company are waiting for Sam at the top of the well at the night fort, as Sam tells us in A Storm of Swords. He said there would be people, he huffed. People in the castle. I didn't know you'd be right at the top of the steps, though. Cold Hands even knows what is going on south of the wall, it would seem. Again, the choices seem to be that his ravens flew over the wall to the night fort and reported back to Cold Hands, or that he has a link to Blood Raven, or most ambitiously in terms of Cold Hands' power, perhaps he can directly access the Weirwood Net himself. And don't forget, the ravens don't just talk to Cold Hands and act as his eyes and ears. They also attack in coordinated fashion with Cold Hands when he saves Sam and Gilly from the Whites. It's quite dramatic. They descend on the Whites in angry clouds, tearing them apart and filling the sky to the point where Sam cannot see the moon. Then one of the ravens tells Sam to go, 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 and Cold Hands appears and whisks them away. This is less conclusive than Cold Hands talking to the ravens, because the ravens certainly seem intelligent enough to attack Whites on their own or it could be Blood Ravens sending the Ravens to attack. However, it fits in with all the other Cold Hand scenes in which he works together with the Ravens and the Elk in a highly coordinated fashion, and all of it is very neatly explained by the possibility of Cold Hands being a Green Seer or Skin Changer, except that he's dead. A final clue about Cold Hands having access to magic lies in the fact that Cold Hands seems to be able to detect the presence of the Whites. At the start of the chapter where Bran, Cold Hands, Jojen, Mira, and Hodor fight their way up the hill to enter Bloodraven's cave, Cold Hands reaches the base of the hill and simply announces, They're here. It's almost like he can smell them, but Cold Hands has no flowing blood or appetite, and therefore it's unlikely that he has a functioning olfactory system. There was no raven talking to Cold Hands here either, so it wasn't like he was warned by them. I think the only explanation can be that Cold Hands can use magic. I think one of the main narrative purposes of Cold Hands is to tell us about John, and by extension, the last hero. I could be totally wrong about this. Maybe he's Blood Raven's meat suit after all. Maybe the children are controlling the elk, and Cold Hands is just a corpse with no magic. But I don't think so, for all the reasons I've laid out, and for many more yet to come. In particular, I return to the argument that it makes no sense for Jon Snow to be resurrected and lose his magic. And if John's going to retain his magic, or better yet, gain access to new magic, that means that resurrected people can do magic. Beric proves it to be true, actually, when he lights his sword on fire with his own blood. It's a small magic, but it's definitely magic. Therefore, the idea of cold hands having access to magic is not only reasonable, it has precedent. And Beric wasn't even a skin changer. Here's what I think. Just as Vermeer's prologue is there in large part to inform us about what will happen to John when he dies, Cold Hands is there to show us a bit about what's going to happen when he's resurrected. Cold Hands is primarily here to show us that a skin changer can be resurrected and still retain his magic, and that when this happens, what we get is an immortal zombie, impervious to cold, hunger, fatigue, and other human failings, one that can whoop ass on the others by day or by night. Did I just say immortal? Well, some qualifications. First, I assume Cold Hands can be killed, or re-killed you might say, just as any other white can be. He stays well away from the fire, as I mentioned. But who knows how long a zombie lives if undisturbed? What is dead may never die, after all. And if a skin changer's soul is preserved in its animal, 
and is thus in a more intact state than other souls when it's put back in its body, who's to say how long the resurrected person can live? Again, what is dead can never die, but rises again harder and stronger. One of those sayings that kind of sticks with you and you're looking for a meaning, this might be it. The famous line about Cold Hand's age comes from Leaf when she says, They killed him long ago, seemingly referring to the Whites and the others killing Cold Hands long ago. The thinking is that long ago to the children of the forest, who lived for several centuries, must be long ago indeed. There's another clue that Cold Hands is very, very old, which comes when they are forced to butcher the elk after it finally collapses in a dance with dragons. It had been twelve days since the elk collapsed for the third and final time, since Cold Hands had knelt beside it in the snowbank and murmured a blessing in some strange tongue as he slit its throat. That some strange tongue is likely to be the old tongue. There are some wildlings north of the wall who can speak the old tongue, particularly the Thens, but it is not common at all for a member of the Night's Watch to speak it, not for thousands of years anyway. Even if it was something other than the old tongue, what language would we be talking about? Everyone in Westeros now speaks the common tongue, so whatever language it is that Cold Hands is speaking here, it is still an indicator of Cold Hands having knowledge that does not belong in modern Westeros or anything resembling modern Westeros. It's also worth noting that Cold Hand's behavior here does not speak of being skin-changed by Bloodraven, but rather of having a personal set of beliefs. There's an elegant, sad beauty to the description of Cold Hand's kneeling in the snow and uttering a prayer of blessing for his loyal steed as he puts it out of misery. It seems ritualistic, perhaps consistent with older beliefs about hunters who respect the forest and the animals that they take from it, that we see in hunter-gatherer societies all around the world. This could be consistent with Cold Hands being a green man, or simply a first man in tune with the forest and the mindset of the green seers, and it is also suggestive of a direct bond between Cold Hands and the elk. Put it all together, and I think they killed Cold Hands very long ago indeed. A green seer or skin changer who speaks the old tongue, rides a great elk, is attended by flocks of ravens with which he communicates, and who joined the Night's Watch at some point. Cold hands seems like something from the ancient past. In fact, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that cold hands may literally be 8,000 years old. Think about it. Even if he's only been a zombie ranger for 800 years, or even just 80 years, it indicates that zombies do not wear out on their own, at least not very quickly when in the frozen north. Aging has to do with cell growth and cell death, but cold hands is already dead. There's nothing to wear out. The cold magic apparently preserves his body, and if his spirit isn't fading out like barracks because he is a resurrected skin changer, there is potentially no limit to how old he is. He could be infinity. It's worth noting that Cold Hands seems to be much more agile than the other Cold Whites as well. In the first Cold Hands quote that we pulled, Cold Hands vaulted lightly off the back of the ten-foot-tall-at-the-shoulder Great Elk. It's quite the contrast to the Whites, which Sam noted to be clumsy things, though strong and persistent. Cold Hands, on the other hand, is limber and lithe, and he also seems to be a good fighter. He made short work of the Rebel Night's Watch brothers, although he was probably aided by the Ravens, and if he fights whites or others with any regularity and has lived to tell the tale, 
Well, then it bodes well for resurrected Jon Snow's potential physical abilities. I would suggest that it's something about being a skin changer that explains Cold Hand's unzombie-like physical and mental capabilities and his ability to persist for however long he has. Think about the possibility of a merged ghost John spirit returning to John's body for a moment. Might not resurrected John inherit a bit of ghost's quick reflexes or wolfish instinct? Perhaps a resurrected skin changer created in this way with a merged human-animal spirit is actually stronger than a regular human. The whites are very strong as it is. Perhaps Cold Hands has some sort of animal spirit inside him, giving him strength or skill. You need every advantage you can get in the cold, dead lands, after all. The King of Corn and the Green Monster. This section is brought to you by patron supporter and priestess of Starry Wisdom Church, Enovi, Shadowbinder from the Eastern Mountains and Lakes. He's dead. Bran could taste the bile in his throat. Mira, he's some dead thing. The monsters cannot pass so long as the wall stands, and the men of the night's watch stay true. That's what old Nan used to say. He came to meet us at the wall, but he could not pass. He sent Sam instead, with that wildling girl. Mira's gloved hand tightened around the shaft of her frog spear. Who sent you? Who is this three-eyed crow? A friend, dreamer, wizard. Call him what you will. The last Greenseer. The long hall's wooden door banged open. Outside, the night wind howled, bleak and black. The trees were full of ravens, screaming. Cold hands did not move. A monster, Bran said. The ranger looked at Bran, as if the rest of them did not exist. Your monster, Brandon Stark. Yours! The raven echoed from his shoulder. Outside the door, the ravens in the trees took up the cry until the night wood echoed to the murderous song of... Jojo, did you dream this? Who is he? What is he? What do we do now? We go with the ranger, said Jojen. We have come too far to turn back now, Mira. We would never make it back to the wall alive. We go with Bran's monster, or we die. Here in Bran's first chapter from A Dance with the Dragons, we can really see Martin's love of horror writing come through. The wind blowing the door open, the tree full of a murder of ravens screaming, Cold hands watching implacably with his black eyes as they realize he's a walking dead man. Yeah, that's the stuff. In any case, the thing I really want to zero in on is cold hands as Brandon Stark's monster. Because of the wording, it's initially unclear if Bran is calling cold hands a monster or the last green seer a monster, but Jojen makes it clear when he says, we go with Bran's monster in response to a question about whether or not they should follow cold hands. Cold Hands belongs to Bran in some sense. Now, a few people have speculated that this is because of a time loop. Bran at some point went into the past and helped create Cold Hands, something like that. 
The idea of a green seer creating a zombie is obviously something I consider a reasonable possibility, but I am generally hesitant to use time travel as a way to explain mysteries in the books. I believe Martin may be involving a bit of that, but I feel strongly that he's going to strictly limit the sort of time travel paradoxes more common to science fiction. Basically, it's something we can't completely rule out, but it's also a bottomless can of worms which quickly turns into wild conspiracy and tinfoil which attributes everything that ever happened to time-traveling Bran. My approach is to look for more logical answers that do not involve time travel first, and if and when Martin shows us Bran affecting the past or skin-changing Bran the Builder, then we can draw conclusions based on what we see in regards to how limited time travel is in A Song of Ice and Fire. So setting aside the time travel interpretation of Cold Hands being Bran's monster, what could this mean? I think the most logical answer is that Cold Hands is bound to the Stark bloodline in some way, and perhaps to Bran in particular if he's some sort of special chosen one. Most people think that the last hero was a Stark in some sense, and probably the Night's King too, so if Cold Hands does go back to the time of the founding of the Night's Watch and the Long Night, he may well have been created by a Stark or had a duty laid upon him to wait for the promised Stark to come along. If anything like this is true, then Cold Hands would be like 8,000 years old, which kind of makes you feel sorry for the guy. Now when I look at Cold Hands, what I see is someone who is under some sort of eternal obligation, someone who is, in a sense, condemned to literally wander the frozen lands for hundreds or even thousands of years, waiting for Bran Stark to show up, or perhaps guiding the occasional choices for the new Green Seer of the North to Bloodraven's cave to assume the position. Recall that Bloodraven was the Lord Commander when he was supposedly lost on a ranging. Perhaps Coldhands had a hand in that. Think about what it would be like to be Coldhands. I mean, it would pretty much suck, right? I mean, riding the elk was cool at first, but really... There isn't a whole lot to keep you busy north of the Wall. Coldhands has not been seen by any wildlings that we know of, so he must keep a fairly low profile. What is he doing? I mean, again, they killed him long ago, and even if long ago was only 80 years, that's 80 years of wandering the tundra, staring at snow. And don't forget, you're dead. The savor of food, of sex, of laughter, and fellowship, all gone. I have to think Coldhands could put himself out of his misery any time by simply walking into a fire if he wanted to. And yet, he doesn't. Coldhands persists, faithful as ever, solely dedicated to his mission. To me, this speaks of either sacrifice or punishment on Coldhands' part. He's either condemned to this boring-ass mission as a way of atoning for some great sin, or he's the most self-sacrificing dude who ever lived. Speaking in terms of atonement, Perhaps he's the Night's King, chastened and humiliated, somehow compelled by guilt or other means to serve out this lonely watch as recompense for his crimes. My big theory about Azor Ahai is that he was a villainous type. He broke the moon when he forged Lightbringer, according to legend, and I believe this was responsible for the meteors which caused the Long Night. Perhaps that's who Cold Hands is. Azor Ahai, the fallen, penitent zombie. I have speculated that Azor Ahai may have even become the Night's King himself, I'm by no means sold on that, but their symbolism does overlap in some areas, and Stannis seems to be impersonating both of them at once, a possible clue about Azor Ahai becoming the Night's King. And maybe that's who Cold Hands is. It's hard to say for sure without more information, but Cold Hands' current mission could be consistent with someone who has been brought low and then made to atone for their evil deeds, and the two likely suspects in that scenario 
would be the Knights King or Azor Ahai. The idea of atonement also fits in with the larger theme of the Night's Watch itself. In fact, it is the theme of the Night's Watch, as they are exiled criminals who atone for their sins by guarding the realms of men. Cold Hands has basically taken this duty to the next level. The other possibility here is sacrifice, and that's actually the one I want to focus on. Essentially, if Cold Hands is not on his crappy cold mission because of some evil he himself committed, then he is absolutely making a sacrifice of himself. He's given up almost everything it means to be human for his eternal lonely ranging. In this case, he might be connected to the last hero, either the last hero himself or one of his party of OG Night's Watch brothers, because there are some thematic clues about the last hero being something of a sacrifice and because self-sacrifice is perhaps the ultimate in heroic virtue. John and Bran are the two characters who parallel the last hero most closely and both have obviously sacrificed a lot, and probably are not done sacrificing either. The fact that Cold Hands keeps the scarf over his mouth and speaks with a raspy voice could indicate that Cold Hands has a neck or throat wound of some kind, consistent with a sacrifice. John takes a throat wound as well, it should be noted. It's the classic way to sacrifice animals or even people, as we see in Brand's Weirwood Net vision of a human sacrifice at Winterfell. In fact, George has made a fairly direct allusion to Jon Snow as a corn king, which is a term used to describe the very common mythological archetype of a sacrificed male god or king whose death and resurrection brings about the turning of the seasons. Typically, they are sacrificed in autumn, mimicking the death of the leaves and the greenery, and then are then resurrected in the spring, bringing with them the return of fertility and fecundity. The corn king concept is very important to understand if we want to know what's going on with zombies and resurrection and with John and the last hero and quite possibly cold hands. That is why George gives us a direct reference to it, one of the most direct shout-outs to external mythology anywhere in A Song of Ice and Fire. It comes in a dance with dragons out of the mouth of Mormont's raven. He rose and dressed in darkness as Mormont's raven muttered across the room. Corn, the bird said, and... King! And... Snow! John Snow! John Snow! That was queer. The bird had never used his full name before, as best John could recall. John Snow's Corn King status is pretty straightforward. John is the Corn King whose death and resurrection will hopefully turn the seasons and bring an end to the long night which seems to be about to fall. His death comes right as winter falls, and of course, we hope his resurrection will bring about a dream of spring. Now before we go any farther with this line of analysis, I just want to stress how heavy a bit of foreshadowing this really is. By calling John a corn king, George is telegraphing to us that John will be resurrected, and that that resurrection will help bring the spring. I mean, it's not a big shocker. Most people think John is a hero, the special snowflake. But as a corn king, he's a specific type of hero who is defined by the death and rebirth cycle. Another role of the Corn King is to promote the fertility of the land. His death is a sacrifice which literally causes the earth to be fertile so it can feed the people. That's something of the role John plays with the wildlings in A Dance with Dragons, when he lets them through the wall to find food and shelter. And this quote with the raven saying, Corn King Jon Snow, is in fact the beginning of that chapter. The act of feeding the wildlings is the very act that he is killed for, so he is indeed sacrificing himself to feed thousands of people. Earlier in A Dance with Dragons, in the chapter where John is laying out his plans to let the wildlings through the wall, 
The raven also says, corn, king, though without John's name added in just yet. In other words, it's no coincidence that the two corn king references come in conjunction with John's act of feeding the wildlings, and thus eventually sacrificing himself. As you can see, the last hero could very easily be a corn king figure, since he brought about the turning of the seasons after they had been a bit stuck for a while, particularly if he died in the process as I am proposing. As a matter of fact, there is a big giant flaming red clue encouraging us to associate John's corn king status with the last hero and Azora High, and that's really why I'm bringing this up in the first place. The chapter where John lets the wildlings through the wall, the one where the raven says, Corn King John Snow, well, it actually begins with John's Azora High dream, the one where he's defending the wall alone against the forces of the north, which include dead men who scuttle up the ice like spiders, and he's armored in black ice with his valerian steel blade burning red in his fist. This dream is remarkable because it foreshadows John's impending role as some kind of Azor Ahai reborn figure. He's got the burning red sword, and also later in that dream, he slays his love Ygritte, just as Azor Ahai slew Nissa Nissa. But it's also remarkable because it unites the role of Azor Ahai with that of the last hero. John is the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, abandoned and alone, fighting the forces of the North, which parallels the idea of the last hero's companions, dog and horse dying, while he sought for ways to defeat the others in the cold dead lands. The potential implication is clear. Azora High and the last hero might be the same person, or they might be closely linked to one another. At the very least, we already know that they are parallel legends, stories of a hero who fought the darkness of the long night with a magic sword. So what we have here is John dreaming of being some combination of Azora High and the last hero, and then waking to be labeled a corn king, as he goes about doing Corn King things, feeding the people and eventually getting himself killed. Most importantly, the Corn King's resurrection brings the spring, just like the last hero and Azor High were said to do in ancient day, and just as our Azor High reborn characters like John and Danny are expected to do. This is why I say it's critical to understand the basics of the Corn King, because George has based his Long Night Savior figures, at least in part, on the various Corn King figures in world mythology. As an aside, I will just tell you that there are many, many, many myths and legends based around the turning of the seasons, and since George has chosen to make the cycle of the seasons a focal point of his world building and storyline, he is in fact incorporating elements of many of these world myths, of which the Corn King ideas are but one. Another great one is the tale of the abducted moon maiden Persephone, and you can read all about that on my friend Sweet Sunray's blog, mythological weave of ice and fire, and you can find the link on the front page of luciferMeansLightbringer.com. All of this Corn King stuff might seem like a bit of a sidetrack from zombies, but it's actually just the opposite. This is the deeper context in which we must think about resurrected people in the story, particularly John and my idea of a zombie last hero. Usually a Corn King figure is reborn afresh in the spring, however, George has given us a literally resurrected Corn King instead. Using a zombie in place of the reborn Corn King is kind of a dark twist on the classic tale, but then, that's George R. R. Martin. Instead of looking for a hero to save us from the zombie apocalypse, we are actually looking for a zombie hero to save us from the apocalypse. We need Ghost John, the King of Corn. So, the Corn King relates to zombies, and Jon Snow, and the last hero. Does it relate to Cold Hands? Brandon Stark's monster? Well, I believe it does, whether or not he is the last hero or one of the last hero's party. 
We mentioned the possibility that Cold Hands is a green man, an undead one, of course, due to the connection of elk riding and generally being a protector of the forest. Well, the green men are based on a particular type of corn king, the archetype known as the Horned God, whose examples include the Celtic Serunos, the English Hearn the Hunter, the ubiquitous Green Man, who sometimes has branches on his head in place of horns, the Greek Pan, and many others. As far away as India we find him. His name in the Rig Veda is Pashupati, a testament to the Proto-Indo-European roots of the horned nature god idea. All of these figures have horns or antlers, or sometimes branches, on their heads. Some have green skin or some kind of leafy decoration. They all have something to do with the spirit of male virility and fertility. They are usually thought of as solar deities. They all bring fertility to the land, and they all act as protectors of the wood and of nature. Many can speak with animals. Most of all, they are all killed and resurrected to bring about the turning of the seasons, because what they are is more or less a personification of the cycle of nature. Essentially, the Stagman is a forest-centric version of the Corn King. There are other forest-dwelling or fertility-based Corn Kings, which match up with most or all of these ideas, but do not have the horns, such as Jack in the Green, John Barleycorn, even the green-skinned Egyptian death and resurrection god Osiris, who is also a corn god, and the Greek Dionysus, who is followed around by satyrs, which are always some kind of goat-horned human. As you can see, a lot of that is consistent with what little we know of the sacred order of green men, who are said to have antlers on their heads, green skin or green clothing, and who are said to keep eternal watch over the Isle of Faces. I mean, the green man is pretty famous. His green leafy face can be found decorating cathedrals and old buildings all over Europe, so calling these folks green men is basically, well, it's not all that subtle. The children of the forest wear clothing of vines and leaves, and they certainly seem to have a strong connection to the green men on the Isle of Faces. Like the rest of the Corn King lore, the Horn God ideas are also highly consistent with the idea of a last hero who was resurrected to end the long night and bring the spring. Said another way, both the last hero and the green men seem to be drawing from related mythology, and this has to make us wonder about a connection between the last hero and the green men. I would suggest that Cold Hands may be the confluence of these ideas. I believe he is, at the very least, a prototype for making a last hero, a skin-changer zombie, and he reminds Bran and us of the green men in certain ways. Cold Hands rides his elk and keeps eternal watch over the frozen north, kind of like a green man exiled to the frozen dead lands. The entire thing is like a twisted version of the story of the fertility god wandering a fertile land. Cold Hands is like a corpse version of a fertility god wandering the cold and almost dead lands. He still protects the woods that remain, however, and he's obviously in communion with the animals that remain as well. He's also dedicated to fighting the others, so we know he's still on Team Green deep down. This is actually pretty close to the English folktale of Hearn the Hunter, a ghost version of the horned god who has antlers on his head and who rides a horse and guards the woods in spectral form. In fact, if Martin is intending cold hands to play into the green man horned god ideas as I propose, then Hearn the Hunter is definitely the figure we should look to for inspiration. He's clearly the undead version of the horned god. Besides being dead, Hearn is associated with midnight and winter, which is another good match for cold hands. If Cold Hands' mission is one of atonement, as we speculated a moment ago, this would be highly consistent with Hearn the Hunter, 
whose tale has him committing some great sin and then hanging himself from an oak tree for fear of shame and disgrace, only to become a ghostly guardian of the woods after his death. Now, I mentioned before that cold hands may have a neck or throat injury based on the scarf he wears and his voice, the exact description of which was, his voice rattled in his throat, as thin and gaunt as he was. Cold hands is dead, so it makes sense that his voice would rattle like a death rattle, and it could be yet another match for Hearn and his strangulation from the oak tree. Finally, we know that Martin is thinking about Hearn the Hunter because Hearn gets a clear shout-out in the form of a Westerosi legend about a pair of brothers called Harlan the Hunter and Herndon of the Horn, who took to wife a woods witch and built the castle at Horn Hill in the Reach. That's why their descendants, House Tarley, have a striding huntsman, red on green, as their sigil. Naturally, the first person to meet Cold Hands, our Hearn the Hunter impressionist, is Samuel Tarley. It's almost like he's meeting his ancient ancestor. And the first word Cold Hands says to Sam is, brother. Party on, Garth. Party on, Bobby B. This section is brought to you by a patron supporter and newly minted priest of Starry Wisdom Church, the Black Maester Azizel, Lord of the Feasible and Keeper of the Records, whose rod and mask and ring smell of coffee. There's actually an even more prominent allusion to Serunos and his horned cousins than the Green Men in A Song of Ice and Fire, and it too is specifically associated with the theme of sacrificing the horned god to turn the seasons and therefore may have something to do with the last hero and the long night. Here I speak of Garth the Green, the legendary founding father of many lineages in the Reach, and perhaps even the Starks, according to some tales. He's also called Garth Greenhand, or Garth Greenhair, or just the Green God, and much like the Green Men, he too is thought in some tales to have a stag's antlers on his head, as well as green skin. He's actually a perfect incarnation of the Horn God, causing maidens and the land alike to be fertile and fruitful in an almost over-the-top way. Garth is said to have made even barren women or old crones fertile with a touch. Bow-chicka-wow-wow. Garth's royal line of gardener kings wore crowns of vines and flowers and sat in a living tree throne called the Oaken Seat, which supposedly grew from an oak Garth the Green himself planted. To me, that sounds suspiciously like Greenseer activity. The Oaken Seat was destroyed in the ancient past, so we have no way of knowing what the truth was behind this legend, but the general idea of a living wooden throne certainly has our attention. Garth also supposedly planted the three intertwined weirwoods in the God's Widowed High Garden known as the Three Singers, which is a clue linking Garth to the Green Seers and their magic. Garth is referred to as a god in some tales, and in the World of Ice and Fire we read that A few of the oldest tales of Garth Greenhand present us with a considerably darker deity, one who demanded blood sacrifice from his worshippers to ensure a bountiful harvest. In some stories, the green god dies every autumn when the trees lose their leaves, only to be reborn with the coming of spring. This version of Garth is largely forgotten. This version of Garth is largely consistent with the Horn God archetype is what he is. He's a signature Corn King, proving beyond a doubt that the Horn God and Corn King mythology is indeed woven into the fiber of A Song of Ice and Fire. 
we can't help but notice that Garth is more or less indistinguishable from the Green Men and wonder if perhaps Garth was a Green Man, or if perhaps the Green Man descend from him. The stories of both Garth the Green and the Sacred Order of the Green Men are dated back to the time before the Long Night, so they could well be connected. The Corn King idea of sacrificing and resurrecting Garth to turn the seasons, given to us so clearly here, causes us to wonder again if Garth and the Green Men might have some connection to the last hero. The story of Garth's sacrifice and resurrection may be telling us a story about horned people having something to do with ending the Long Night. Specifically, a story about horned people being sacrificed to help end the Long Night. My notion of skin changer zombies fits nicely here, explaining just how it is that human sacrifice might actually lead to the capability to defeat the others. Instead of sacrificing humans to harvest their magic, as we have seen elsewhere, this could have been more like volunteerism, green men volunteering to become skin changer zombies. Elsewise, someone might have raised green men slain in battle with the others. If Cold Hands were to be a green man, his origin story might be something along these lines. In fact, we just talked about Sam Tarley's ancestors, Herndon of the Horn and Harlan the Hunter, as a clear shout out to Hearn the Hunter, but what I didn't mention is that in the World of Ice and Fire, we learned that Herndon and Harlan were one of the 12 notable descendants of Garth the Green. That's right, the Hearn the Hunter ideas, which fit Cold Hands so well, are directly tied to an ancestry from Garth the Green, the horned god who was sacrificed to turn the seasons. Maybe that's why they called it Horn Hill, because they were horned people. Hearn the Hunter was also associated with a particular oak tree called Hearn's Oak, and that would be the one he hung himself from, just as Garth was associated with a specific oak tree, the Oaken Seat. My, my, my. Finally, and somewhat humorously, we find that the greatest gardener king in the history of the Reach was named Garth Goldenhand. Much ado is made about hands of gold are always cold, if you recall, so perhaps George is making a hands of gold, hands of cold joke here, if cold hands is descended from Garth or the green men. Golden hands comes from Garth, in other words, so perhaps cold hands does too. There might be a clue about a connection between the green men and the last hero to be found in the idea of Bran the Builder having possibly descended from Garth the Green. Another one of those 12 notable children of Garth the Green is someone called Brandon of the Bloody Blade, who according to some legends in the Reach may have been an ancestor of Brandon the Builder. It's all very old folk tale and legend of course, but the suggestion here is of a connection between House Stark and Garth the Green, who might have been a green man. If the last hero was a Stark, he may be descended of the Green Men too. We'll have more to say about this in part two of our zombie extravaganza, where we will have a look at the myth of the King of Winter. In fact, many of the houses of the Reach and even the Lannisters are thought to descend from Garth, and thus potentially from Green Men. If only we knew what Green Men actually are. Are they closer to humans? Children of the forest? Or something else entirely? Do they really have horns on their head like a satyr or a stag man, or just very creative hats? Or are they perhaps skin changers who ride elk, like cold hands? Could they have been some of the first, first men to whom the children taught their magic? If I were to try to narrow it down a bit, I would say that they are probably not children, or else they wouldn't use the word men to describe them. If they are a cousin to the children, perhaps a different type of elf species, maybe taller, that would really be something. 
I do want to believe in some sort of awesome Serunos-like being, but the more conservative or skeptical option would be that the green men are human skin changers or green seers. However, the fact that they have lived essentially isolated and self-sufficient on the Isle of Faces for 8,000 years or more would make a bit more sense if they were long-lived beings like the children who do not breed very often or in large numbers. Here's the thing. Memories of the stag man are actually to be found all throughout Westeros, even as far north as the lands beyond the wall. As John is letting the wildlings through the wall, doing his corn king thing, he sees the fearsome men of the frozen shore riding bone chariots with hounds as big as direwolves. A bad lot, those, Torment says. And we get these lines. Some of the men wore antlers on their hats, and some wore walrus tusks. The two sorts did not love each other, he soon gathered. It could be nothing, or it could be something done in the memory of the horned green men. Additionally, there was a wildling king beyond the wall in ancient day called the Horned Lord. He led an attack on Westeros, allegedly using sorcery to pass by the wall. He's also the guy who gave us the famous A Song of Ice and Fire truism, Sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. So it seems that the Horn Lord was associated with sorcery and magic, which is consistent with the idea of the green men being able to use magic. The wildlings named a constellation after him, the Horned Lord, which is called the Stallion in Westeros, so he must have been an important dude. Or perhaps the idea of Horned Lords was important, and he was just playing into a powerful idea which already existed. The wildlings live in something of a cultural time capsule north of the Wall, so any cultural beliefs they have in common with people from Westeros proper most likely originated to a time before the wall was built. The Horn Lord ideas fit this pattern. They are found in the very oldest legends from the Reach, so even though the Reach is very far away from the frozen shore, this could be one of the old First Men cultural ideas carried over into wildling culture, dating back to a time before the wall cut off the wildlings from the rest of Westeros. That's about the approximate time when the Sacred Order of Green Men was established and when Garth was said to live. By the way, the Horned Lord is also the particular name that the practitioners of Wicca used to name their version of the Horned God. The full title is The Horned Lord of Death and Resurrection. So we can see that what George is doing is referencing various types of horn gods and corn kings in various places. And there's more to come. Now, if Cold Hands or the Last Hero is connected to the Green Men, it could mean that the Green Men actually came north and left a more direct impression on the people there. Osha the Wildling does say that the children and the giants and the, quote, other old races are still alive north of the Wall, and we know she is right about the children and the giants. Other old races? Could those include Green Men? Of course, we've actually been seeing Horned Folk front and center from day one, or at least people who have a strong recollection of horned folk. I mean, it's a fact that somebody with antlers on their head sure made a big impression on the Durand and Storm Kings, who have been wearing antlered helms and antlered crowns for thousands of years. The Storm Lords of House Baratheon picked up this habit when Oris Baratheon defeated the last Storm King, Argilac Durandin, took his daughter to wife, and then took on all the trappings of the Storm Kings. That's why we see Robert and Renly galloping around in antlered helms, and why Stannis has a black stag in his sigil. Renly goes further, wearing green armor. He's even called the Green Knight when he is first introduced to us in A Game of Thrones. 
Where did the ancient Durandon get this image, anyway? The Stormlanders don't have any reference to Garth the Green in their folklore that we've heard of, but they seem to have the same taste in headgear. And they are definitely cut from the same mythological cloth. Martin hangs an allusion to the Horn God mythology on Robert in Game of Thrones, as Ned lies delirious in the dungeons of King's Landing. He found himself thinking of Robert more and more. He saw the king as he had been in the flower of his youth, tall and handsome, his great antlered helm on his head, his warhammer in hand, sitting his horse like a horned god. He heard his laughter in his eyes, blue and clear as mountain lakes. The idea of sacrificing the horned god at the end of summer is present with the Baratheons too, as Robert and Renly are both associated with being summer kings who are sacrificed as winter draws close. Robert's reign consists of a long summer, and he comes to Winterfell talking of the rich fertility of the South, from the food to the wine to the women, a scene which is broken down in loving detail by Sweet Sunray in her Chthonic Cycle essays. Again, link on luciformeanslightbringer.com. Robert is also mimicking the fertility aspect of Garth and the Horned God, spreading his royal oats everywhere he can. Meanwhile, Renly's warriors are literally dubbed the Knights of Summer by Catelyn, and Renly's armor is described thusly before he's killed. A deep green, the green of leaves in a summer wood, so dark it drank the candlelight. That's a nice way of evoking summer, while also perhaps foreshadowing something darker. This description also associates Renly the Green Knight with the woods, just where a green man belongs. Robert and Renly's deaths are, of course, both laden with appropriate symbolism. Just before he's killed by the boar, Robert is hunting a white hart, a stag, in the Kingswood. The idea of hunting the symbol of your own house symbolizes Robert's own self-destruction, which he achieved by getting himself too drunk to survive the encounter with the boar, and by essentially ignoring the ills of the kingdom and outsourcing the duty of governance irresponsibly. Ned remarks upon this after leaving Robert's death chamber, saying, Even the truest knight cannot protect a king against himself. Robert aims to sacrifice a stag, and becomes the sacrificed stag himself, in other words. After he does, summer is over, the good times are over, and everyone starts dying, burning, and starving. Robert was also wearing green clothing, his hunting greens, when he was wounded, and he wore them until his death. Renly's death is even more apropos of the horned god, because he is slashed across the throat like a sacrifice, right at the moment that he's putting on his green armor and his antlered helm. All the lights gutter out, and Renly's last word is cold, which could be, to put us in mind, of the end of summer and the long night, the appropriate time to sacrifice the horned god. Similarly, as Robert laying dying in a very warm room, he says, Gods, why is it so cold in here? And of course, John the Corn King never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. So this looks like a depiction of winter's onset at the death of the horned god or corn king, as the legend demands. Adding to this imagery, Catelyn thinks to herself in the aftermath of Renly's murder that, quote, Death came in that door and blew the life out of him as swift as the wind snuffed out his candles, which is a nice way to tie Renly's death to the fall of an evil darkness. He was killed by a shadow being with a shadow sword, after all. Recall his armor being a green so dark it drank the candlelight. Basically, everything about this scene is associated with snuffing out light and bringing darkness. Recall also that the Stagman is typically a solar character. 
Note that Renly is all green and gold, with gold standing in for the sun. So killing the sun is implied here anyway, just by killing the stagman. And killing the sun is, of course, more or less the theme of the Long Night. This is one of my very favorite scenes in the books, as dark as it is, because the way Martin worked the sacrifice of the Horn God into his fiction here is absolutely stupendous. This is a scene that people alive on the Earth 4,000 years ago would understand in a visceral, intrinsic way, and that's not an overstatement. The Baratheons are proving to be excellent Horn Gods so far, and don't think that resurrection is left out of the mix. Oh no, not by a long shot. See, I told you this green man horn god stuff had something to do with zombies. Here is Robert's death scene from A Game of Thrones. By rights, he should be dead already. I have never seen a man cling to life so fiercely. My brother was always strong, Lord Renly said. Not wise, perhaps, but strong. In the sweltering heat of the bedchamber, his brow was slick with sweat. He might have been Robert's ghost, as he stood there, young and dark and handsome. It's almost like Renly is showing us Robert's ghost leaving his dying body and standing over his own corpse. And in A Clash of Kings, after Robert is safely in the grave, we get this description of King Renly from Catelyn when she finds him holding attorney on the road to King's Landing. In their midst, watching and laughing with his young queen by his side, sat a ghost in a golden crown. Small wonder the lords gather round him with such fervor, she thought. He is Robert come again. So twice now we have seen Renly called a ghostly version of Robert the Horn God, and here in this quote he is specifically associated with a resurrected Robert. He's a ghostly resurrected Horn God, just the fellow we're after. He even allies with Highgarden, the former seat of Garth's royal line of Gardener kings, now ruled by House Tyrell, and his stag crown is worked in the colors of Highgarden, green and gold, to symbolize his union with Marjorie Tyrell. In other words, the ghostly green resurrected horn god Renly is specifically tied back to Garth by his union with Highgarden. Best of all, after Renly dies in his emerald castle alive with light, he himself is resurrected in a manner of speaking. You'll recall that Garland Tyrell dons Renly's green antlered armor at the Battle of the Blackwater and saves the day masquerading as Renly's ghost. Davos hears this story of the end of the battle in a storm of swords. The Lannisters had taken him from the flank, and his fickle bannermen had abandoned him by the hundreds in the hour of his greatest need. King Renly's shade was seen as well, the captain said, slaying right and left as he led the Lion Lord's van. It said his green armor took a ghostly glow from the wildfire, and his antlers ran with golden flames. All right, that's cool. Now he really is a resurrected green-horned god. And consider who is inside the armor. Garlan, a Tyrell whose name is derivative of Garth. Garlan, Garth. This simply adds to the horn god symbolism and anchors resurrected Renly back to Garth the Green once again. It also implies using skin changing to body snatch, like Bran does with Hodor, as we have one person wearing another's skin and masquerading as them. That could be trouble. But what's with those fiery golden antlers? Is this going to turn into an Azor Ahai thing again? Son of a... 
Garth Vader. This section is brought to you by patron supporter and priestess of Starry Wisdom Church, Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort, Lord Commander of the Knights Ho-Watch, and Avenger of Brave Danny. This is Sir Dantos, recounting the tale of resurrected Renly to Sansa in A Clash of Kings. They plunged through Stannis like a lance through a pumpkin, every man of them howling like some demon in steel. And do you know who led the vanguard? Do you? Do you? Do you? Rob? It was too much to be hoped, but... It was Lord Renly, Lord Renly in his green armour with the fires shimmering off his golden antlers. Lord Renly, with his tall spear in his hand. They say he killed Sir Gynard Morrigan himself, in single combat, and a dozen all the great knights as well. It was Renly, it was Renly, it was Renly. Oh, the banners, darling Sansa. Oh, to be a knight. A fiery warrior leading an army of demons conforms very well with my interpretation of Azor Ahai as a villain who brought on the Long Night. Most importantly, this resurrected burning stag man which Renly has become is simply a mimicking of the burning stag symbolism of Stannis, who is of course playing the role of Azor Ahai. There's actually a very clever pun to be found in Stannis' sigil, because a stag can also be called a heart, H-A-R-T, and therefore, Stannis' sigil is actually saying the same thing in two different ways. It's a fiery H-A-R-T heart, and it's a fiery H-E-A-R-T heart. It's clever wordplay, to be sure, but it's sending us a very important message. The burning stagman fiery heart is intrinsically connected to the fiery heart of R'hllor, symbol of fire magic and Azor Ahai. The image that Renly and Stannis are showing us is a fiery, horned lord version of Azor Ahai, but one who is a corpse in some sense. The Azor Ahai and Last Hero stories are all about fixing the broken cycle of the seasons, and that's exactly what the Horn God and Corn King mythology is about, turning the seasons. The Horn God does this by dying and being resurrected, and thus we see all of this resurrection and zombie action around the Last Hero and Azor Ahai. Now that we have a better idea of what the Stagman implies, we can see that this is another clue about Garth and or the Green Men being wrapped up in this whole Azor Ahai last hero ending the Long Night business. I believe that's also why George makes such a big deal of the dragon's horns, even showing us musical horns made from dragon horns, just as other animals' horns are turned into musical horns. Azor Ahai is strongly tied to dragons, so I think the idea of Azor Ahai the fiery horned lord basically overlaps with the idea of a horned dragon person. George is also taking advantage of the fact that the modern Christian image of Satan as a goat-horned or goat-legged devil is essentially a corrupted version of the classical horn god idea, and this was done primarily as a way to tarnish pagan religions with evil in the eye of believers. Eli Levy's Baphomet, created in 1855, is another example of a darker, more occult twist on the horn god archetype, and I believe that George is dipping into some of this mythology to create a Zora High. Baphomet is actually not as nefarious as he looks, and there's a lot of interesting ideas there about balance between male and female, higher awareness, knowledge, and learning. That's a subject which we shall have to expand on another time, but it's useful to point out that there is plenty of precedent for a darker or even demonic version of the Horn God, 
as we see with Stannis and resurrected Renly. And there are also plenty of references to Stannis worshipping a demon god as well to complement this idea. Returning to that scene from the Battle of the Blackwater that we just quoted from, we have last hero symbolism. Consider the deeds of fiery resurrected Renly. He slew Guillard Morrigan in single combat and a dozen other great knights. In other words, Guillard is, kind of, leading a group of twelve plus one, just like the last hero and his twelve. Guillard himself would be the last hero then, and his symbolism lines up with this. He is called Guillard the Green, a former member of Renly's own Rainbow Guard, meaning that he's a Green Knight too, like Renly was before he was killed. House Morgan's castle in the Stormlands is named Crow's Nest, and their sigil is a black crow in flight on Storm Green. In other words, Guillard is a Green Knight and a black crow who leads a group of twelve like the last hero. Very suggestive of a green man joining the Night's Watch and becoming a crow last hero. Unfortunately, Guillard the last hero dies. Oh no! What to do? Time to make a green man zombie. At this point, the idea of Cold Hands being an undead green man isn't looking so far-fetched, huh? This grouping of 12 things being led by a 13th thing is what I like to call the last hero math. Guillard is a great knight worthy of Renly's Rainbow Guard, and he died along with a dozen other great knights. This math is always found around the last hero character in a given metaphor, as we see with Guillard the Green in this battle. We saw the same thing when Renly is playing the role of Green Man to be sacrificed. You'll recall the line from that scene was, Death came in that door and blew the life out of him as swift as the wind snuffed out his candles. And by his candles, Cat is referring to the twelve iron braziers in Renly's tent. In other words, Renly's death is specifically likened to the snuffing out of a candle and then compared to twelve other candles, which were snuffed out at the same time. So, it's the exact same pattern that we see with Guillard, a group of twelve, led by a thirteenth, who all die. As a further reading exercise, I encourage you to look for any example you can find in the books of twelve things with a thirteenth thing that is somehow set apart. The word dozen is thrown around a lot, but it's that extra thirteenth thing which makes the pattern. Once you find one of these examples, take a look at the objects themselves and see if they can play into the symbolism of the Night's Watch and the Last Hero. If they do, then write me an email. You might have something. All right, so Guillard and Renly are both playing the role of Green Man Last Hero when they die, and they're both surrounded by a dozen companions after a fashion. Who kills the Last Hero? It's actually the same person in both scenes. Someone playing the role of a demonic, undead Azor Ahai. You'll recall that it was Stannis' shadow, complete with a shadow sword version of Lightbringer, who murdered Renly when Renly was playing the role of Green Man. Giard the Green is killed by resurrected Renly, a fiery horned god with a demonic host who, again, is just mimicking the burning stag symbolism of Stannis, a clear Azor Ahai symbol. What does this tell us? Well, Azor High and the Last Hero seem to be fighting or killing each other, and there might be some sort of cycle going on, because we see Renly play both roles, a Last Hero being sacrificed and an undead Azor High killing the Last Hero. I have proposed before that the connection between Azor High and the Last Hero might have been a father-son or a brother-brother relationship, and an adversarial one at that, where one opposes the other. And that might be what we're seeing here. Robert's death actually plays into this pattern of the green horned man being killed by a horned Azor Ahai too. He's wearing green when he dies, 
and he's killed by a black devil of a boar, which Robert says must have been sent by the gods to punish him. Azor Ahai the wild boar? One thinks of TV show Renly's joke about Azor Ahai's smoke and salt making him sound like a roast ham. And chuckle all you want, it's a pretty good joke, but the key thing here is the idea of a black devil sent by the gods killing the green man, with the boar's tusk being similar to a horn. House Morgan, from which Guillard hails, is a great example of how George uses the sigils and the history of each house to support important metaphors in the story. The entire history of House Morgan, in fact, is built around this moment when Guillard plays the last hero in a metaphor, a black and green crow leading a group of twelve only to be killed by Azor High. To wit, the only two historical members of House Morgan that we know of get killed by things which symbolize Azor High, a dragon and a person who is the blood of the dragon. Dickon Morgan was killed by Queen Rhaenys' dragon Meraxes at the battle known as the Last Storm. That's also where Argilac, the last of the Durned and Storm Kings, met his fate, reinforcing the metaphor of a dying stagman at that scene. Argilac was in turn slain by a dragon-blooded person, the Targaryen bastard Oris Baratheon, who then became a stagman himself, only he would be a dragon stagman at that point. Then we have a Morrigan, who left his name behind to become Sir Daemon the Devout of the Warrior's Sons, only to be killed in a trial of seven going against Magor Targaryen, called Magor the Cruel. So altogether, we have three dead black crows of House Morrigan, one killed by a demonic fiery stag Renly, one killed by an actual golden dragon Meraxes, and one killed by the most monstrous Targaryen in history, Magor the Cruel. All of this history only serves to reinforce the idea that the last hero is apparently supposed to be killed by Azor High. But here's the important part. The last hero is famous for winning, not losing. All of the scenes, with the green man last hero being butchered, signaled a loss for their side. They are not heroic sacrifices to achieve victory. I believe the answer is simple. The death of the last hero is merely one of the first steps in his quest to ending the long night. According to my theory, the last hero has to die so that he can become a skin changer zombie, and it is only then that he can face the others and end the long night. It's the resurrection of the Horn God and the Corn King that bring the spring, after all. In fact, what best describes what we are seeing here with a horned Azor High killing the green last hero is a cycle of two Horn Gods killing one another, and that's no accident. Some versions of the Horn God mythology see him as a pair of brothers or a father and son who kill each other every six months. The most famous version of this is the Oak and Holly King. You could write a whole essay on those two, but the point is that they are like two aspects of the same god, yet also like rival brothers, with the Holly King representing winter and the Oak King summer. Their cycle of fraternal deicide is yet another depiction of the cycle of the seasons by means of a dying and resurrecting god. It plays out very nicely with Stannis and Renly. Fiery demonic Stannis kills Renly, and then fiery resurrected Renly returns with a host of steel demons to defeat Stannis's forces at the Battle of the Blackwater. This cycle goes both ways too. Robert the Horn God killed the dragon man Rhaegar on the Trident. Robert was called the Demon of the Trident, however, so the Green Horn people can be demon-associated too. At the Battle of the Blackwater, the wildfire unleashed by Tyrion, who's on the same side as resurrected Renly, was called the Jade Demon, which seemed to have hands and whips of green fire, 
and that is more of the same idea, a green demon. All of this points towards a cycle, with both types of horn gods being killed and resurrected. It's a song of ice and fire, folks. Everyone dies. Spoiler alert. The important part is that a lot of things rise harder and stronger afterward. I'll have more to say about this idea of rival horn gods in the future, but for now the thing to take away here is that the last hero and Azor High are both tied to the collective horn god mythology, and that the events which surround their deaths and resurrections seem to be right at the heart of the story of the Long Night and the War for the Dawn. To sum up what we've just learned, we can see that Martin is working the theme of the Horn God and the Corn King into the story in several intertwined ways. The idea of the turning of the seasons being personified as a dying and resurrected fertility god is a natural match for Martin's world, where the turning of the seasons is kind of a big fucking deal, to quote Joe Biden. It makes sense to align the sacrificed fertility god who was resurrected to bring the spring with characters who undergo a death and resurrection process in the process of bringing an end to the long night, such as the last hero and presumably Jon Snow. While it's not conclusive, Cold Hands does seem to fit into this line of symbolism as well, which is why I think he might be a green man, or one of the last hero's party, or both, and at the very least, a resurrected skin changer or green seer who ranges the haunted forest. So what about those 12 companions of the last hero? What about the original brothers of the Night's Watch? Could they have been zombies too? But of course. But we're out of time for today, so in three days, this topic will rise from the dead and give birth to another podcast titled Sacred Order of Green Zombies 2, The Undead Night's Watch. It's already written and recorded and was originally part of the script, but instead of releasing a three-hour-plus podcast, I took out my zombie-slaying sword and cut it in twain. Part two will actually be a lot shorter, so look out for that by Moonrise on the third day. I originally set out to write about zombie skin changers only, not green men, but I kept running into green men and horn god references as you've seen, and there are more yet to come in the next episode. I even tried to split it into a zombie episode and a green men episode, but there was really no keeping them separate. Their spirits had commingled too long. As I've said, I believe the resurrected fertility god ideas are the lens through which we must view John's resurrection and impending zombiehood in the context in which we must understand the last hero and the problem of ending the long night. And that's why I've given you my thoughts on zombies and the last hero and the sacred order of the green men at the same time, because they belong together. See you in three days, and if any crows ask you for corn, don't give them any.